trapped him in E.T. Now Henry Thomas is back as Cody Walpole. Cody is an adventurer about to discover the secret of frog dreaming. Guys, what do you know about a pond five miles east of Devil's Knob? I want you to promise me you'll stay away from that pond. Do you believe in monsters? Some for 20 years. I was married to one. First you dance with the devil. Then you find out about Gungadu. Cody, just hang on. This is going too far. That thing could be a thousand feet deep if there's a bottom at all. I reckon I got about three minutes worth of air down there. Henry Thomas from E.T. is Cody Walpole, whose search for adventure takes you to the depths of a legend. The legend of Frog Dream. Hello, this is Lee from Diabolique. Um, here with the second instalment of this podcast, where we're talking to film critics, historians, writers, uh, academics, um, curators, programmers, etc., um, discussing their passions and loves and what they're working on. Today, we are lucky to have Melbourne-based Jarrett Garn, um, who is a film critic, commentator, programmer, and award-winning documentarian from Melbourne, Australia, which I already just said. He's the editor-in-chief on the Monster Fest site, a podcast correspondent at Good Movie Monday, and a filmmaker for the last two decades. His award-winning documentary feature Gone Lesbo Gone, the untold tale of an unseen film, has played festivals the world over and focuses on Andrew Leavold's cult film Lesbo A Go-Go, the film on which he also served as cinematographer. Aside from features, Jarrett has worked in various capacities from director to cinematographer to editor to commentator on numerous promotional and supplemental um, featurettes for such local and international labels as Monster Pictures, Umbrella Entertainment, Mad Men Entertainment, Vestron Video Collectors um, Series, Kino Lorba, Bounty Films, Platinum Cult Edition, Severin Films, Second Sight Films, Wild Eye Releasing, and 88 Films. He's currently co-producing and shooting the second series of the wildly popular web series Video Hoarders. Hello, Jarrett. Welcome. Thanks, Lee. <laughs> I, I always love when someone has to say the title of that documentary I made because <laughs> it's an outrageous mouthful. I think that was part of the intention. I was like, yeah, just make it as big a ridiculous a title as you can and people are going to have to, to some extent, say it at some point in time. Most people just cut it down to Gone, Lesbo, Gone, but when I hear the full title read out, it gives me a laugh. Well, I'm a big, going, man? I'm good. And as you know, I'm a big fan of long titles, you know, like my obsession with things like yes. the, the effect of man and the effect of gamma rays on man and the moon, marigolds and all those, you know, those lengthy yep. stop film titles that came around. Um, Howie, I'm good. I'm good. We're both, um, it's a bit crazy at the time of this recording. We're in isolation and, you know, all this sort of quarantine uh, thing happening, but it, we're still doing our work, aren't we? We are, we are. I think we're finding new work to do because we've got more time and maybe a little bit more focus as well. Absolutely. So I wanted to start, Jarrett, with um, one of the core things that you do. You do multiple things, as your bio suggests. But one of the core things you do is working on supplement features um, for releases. And one that I've got in my hand right now uh, is the Frog Dreaming release, which, you know, um, was really heavily welcomed. Um, by, by uh, fans 
um, of this film. Uh, it's a childhood favourite of a whole bunch of people. So once it finally got released, it had these beautiful features that you were some of which you were responsible for. So can you yeah. walk us through that? When was the first time you saw that movie? Why did it resonate? And what did you work on as far as that release goes? Right, well, Frog Dreaming, I remember when it came out on video through Roadshow Home Video back in the mid-'80s, and it was like... I, I, as a kid, I grew up being obsessed with ET. I think most most kids that grew up through you know the early eighties loved ET. So Henry Thomas, you know, transplanted in the Australian sort of outback or regional community, as it is in this film, was really exciting to me because it was like you had Elliot in Australia, and that's mm-hmm. pretty damn cool. So I think that was my draw to the movie. But I also liked that it had this sort of flo- uh, folklore sensibility about it. Yeah. Um, although it was probably a little bit. Um, I don't know what the word is, cultural appropriation with regards to Aboriginal culture in it. But, I mean, in, in that era, it was it was fresh to me. I was quite young, but that was interesting as well because I think that was probably one of the first films that opened my eyes to Aboriginal, Indigenous, Australian culture. Okay. Uh, and so there was a lot of aspects of it that I really, really enjoyed. And I, I always liked, you know, kids' adventure films, you know, like The Goonies in that era. So the idea of having something Australian like that was really appealing and it was one of those few films that i grew up as a horror kid you know i I watched horror movies from i don't know from the day i was born really um but that was that movie that had elements of you know uh sort of genre sensibilities like a few different horror elements in addition to the folklore elements which were quite spooky as well yeah and here i was friends at sea kids as heroes which resonated as well with you as well absolutely yeah and so seeing that and being able to talk about that with kids my own age that had were allowed to see this movie that was really cool and then i remember i think we went away for like school camp but we weren't roughing it we weren't intense we were in like cabins and that but we'd have a movie night we'd all you know join up for the movie night and i think i recall that at least two of the camps they played from dreaming one of them they played roxanne which was awesome right Steve Martin, Darryl yeah Carter, yeah roxanne. i love that movie so it's sort I. of seemingly quite inappropriate for children to watch <laughs> and I don't know when it was in 1987 or so. Could have been worse. Um, I could have played Pennies from Heaven, which would be far oh, more in, far more inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so and then seeing it again with a group of kids and going, wow, you know, kids were like generally frightened watching it, and I was thinking, man, this isn't scary, but it was feeding off that energy of other people and how they reacted to the movie, and so I think it it really had a crucial part in my early development. Cool. Um, and being able to have that shared experience with other people over a movie because, God, when I was, like, having sleepovers, you know, by the time I think it was nine or something, you'd start off with something soft like The Adventures of Baron Munchausen or Batman, Tim Burton's Batman, and then slowly creep into something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or the, you know, um, slightly lesser-known Slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then my friends would just, like, peek, be scared, wanting to call their mum. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, going back to Frog Dreaming, so the opportunity I was given by Leon O'Regan, who's the production manager at Umbrella Entertainment, mm-hmm. and he initially came to me with regards to shooting an interview with uh, Rachel Friend, and I I said, look, yeah, what, what what's it for? And I, I kind of immediately knew, and he's like, well, are you interested? And I'm like, yeah, what is it? And then he said Frog Dreaming, and I was like, oh my God, Frog Dreaming is coming to, to Blu-ray. Like, they're actually going to rescan it. It's going to be in its right aspect ratio. I've never seen it in its right aspect ratio. So I completely nerded out over the idea of it even coming out. But then the opportunity to be a part of working on the special features was fantastic. And 
that started with that one interview that led into doing another interview that I combined into the one feature. Mm-hmm. And then, then I was gifted other content to cut together to make featurettes from uh, for the release. And I think in the long run, I worked on about three of the featurettes. And then then there was some footage we had, which was really interesting. It was like Brian Trenchard-Smith and um, Henry Thomas have a shared sort of passion of um, uh, jousting and medieval sort of um, armors and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But it was all this weird sort of stuff. I was like what do you do with this? Cause it's not related to the movie and it just won't work within the feature at about the movie. But, um, it, it was just too good to not use. Yeah. So I said to Leon, do you want me to use this? And he goes, is there a way you can use it? I said, what if I cut it together and we just put it in there as an Easter egg and you hide it somewhere just so that it, it has a place. It's not going to be lost. And he's like, yeah, that sounds great. So we did that. And that was sort of a last minute sort of addition. And that ended up on there as well. But it was, yeah, it was really terrific. Even uh, cutting together the interview, which Brian Trenchard Smith had organised himself, because he's remained in contact with Henry Thomas ever since they did From Dreaming. They mm-hmm. worked together again. I think on another picture in the nineties. It was either a DTV or made for TV movie. Um, but they've always stayed in contact. And so he approached Henry about doing it. Henry, at this point in time, is on a climb back upward because I think he was just had just shot The Haunting of Hill House, mm-hmm. the Mike Flanagan series. Mm-hmm. And uh, he completely agreed to it because he had such an affinity uh, for his experience and having shot that movie in Australia and working with Brian on it. Yeah, it's and a be- so- it's a really good interview with him, and I, oh, I, I so good. It's funny that because um, you know everyone remembers him as uh, Elliot, of course, but he did a lot of, of good stuff as a kid. One of my favorites is Cloak and Dagger, which is the remake oh. of um, uh, the Window, which is one of my favorite noirs with Bobby yeah. Driscoll, little Bobby Driscoll, who played um, uh, he was in Song of the South and was the voice of uh, Peter Pan, Disney's Peter Pan. But that film's amazing with um, Barbara Hale and. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, Ruth Roman, who you know ends up in a lot of genre yeah. films later, with like The Baby and Day of the Animals, but that remake, the Cloak and Dagger film, that was fun. That was great. I rewatched it recently because and it has to do with you, Jarrett, because um, on, in prep for our commentary that we did for Kena Lorber for Link, uh, the Richard yes, Franklin yeah. film, which was Richard fun. Franklin film. But that, no, that that release of Frog Dreaming is is excellent. You did a fantastic job. Um, do you, and, and is, did, did you, you do the, the you did the location stuff as well on there? Yeah, the no. No, no, oh. that was all Leon. Leon did that with oh. Jamie Blanks. You right. Know, Jamie, the yep. uh, chap who directed Urban Legend and Valentine. Yeah, they they did that together and they've done another location featurette for Next to Kin where they did a lot of drone shots cool. and comparing the previous where the locations were in the film against how they look now. But I was going to mention, funnily enough, there is a story that comes out of that because it was, um, it was Richard Franklin that put uh, the filmmakers in touch with Henry Thomas in regards to doing Frog Dreaming because they'd just done Cloak and Dagger prior mm. to Frog Dreaming. So it's funny, there's a weird parallel between those two films uh, that you've got there. And even actually, there's even another weird parallel because Frog Dreaming is written by Everett DeRoche, mm-hmm. as was Link. So there you go. There you go. It's all it's, it's in, very strange. Seven in, degrees, seven degrees of Henry Thomas. Yeah, exactly. Amazing. <laughs> and Everett, what a genius he was. Um, beautiful screenplays. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the work that we've done together for a bit. Yes. Let's let's sidebar there with Link. That was really yes. fun to do. Was that the first commentary we did together? I feel like that it- was. Yeah, no, that was that was the first we did together. Yeah, so that was really. Interesting too, because I adopted your process of how we went about doing commentaries, and we were 
basically working on different elements of the film, but working through the film structurally uh, with discussion points. And it was it was great because it kept everything so on point, even though when it comes to recording, nothing sort of goes to plan because obviously when you get the two of us in one room, we um, we can talk yeah. and we can go on tangents. That's and right. even if they are related to the film in some sort of way, um, <laughs> it doesn't matter how many pages we've written uh, we never, we never seem to cover them because we're never short of conversation. Yeah, I like that we like night. There was, a, I, I feel like it was a bit of a balance between production history as well as critical stuff. So talking Absolutely. about talking about monkeys and movies, and then talking about you know the production history of the actual film, you know uh, the actors, uh, the animal training, all that stuff. I love all that yeah. kind of nice marriage between both because I think it's important to have both. Uh, like, you know, I love commentaries that are completely, you know, analytical, but then I really do appreciate a lot of production history as well. I think that there's a real importance there, especially if we can actually discuss, uh, talk to these people who've worked on the films, which is something that I've always kind of tried to do if they're, if they're alive. And I know you've tried to do that as well. Uh, and you do that as well. So that's what, you know, we sort of gravitate towards doing as far as, you know, working as, you know, critics or historians or whatever you want to call us. But I, yeah, that was really fun to work on that one with you. That was a good film. And what do you, what, when was the first time you saw Link? And it would have been VHS oh days. It was VHS only because it skipped theatrical in Australia because it got yeah. caught up. I know we discussed it on the commentary, but it got caught up in that whole Canon sale because Canon were going out of business and liquidating films and assets as they were going before they were completely taken over. Mm. So sadly, that film didn't make it to Australia when it was intended. Initially, it was going to get released through Hoyt's distribution, but then because of the whole Canon thing, it ended up in, uh, I think it ended up somehow in the MGM Warner catalogue some weird way. Uh, so it was video, but the very first time I saw it was when it was on the new release shelf and seeing that artwork immediately spoke to me. Like you could tell it was sinister, but it was beautiful illustrated art. Mm. And it just spoke to me immediately. And I think I saw the art and then I might have seen maybe somewhere on there there was like a little circular thing saying from the director of Psycho 2. And I guess that would have been about 89, I think. It might have got its, finally got its video release in Australia. And at that point I was like, Psycho 2, oh my God. Mm. Like, this movie's got a monkey, chimpanzee. Uh, you know, and it's <laughs> the director of Psycho 2, I've got to see this movie. And I watched it with my old man and just immediately loved it. In fact, that was kind of a bit of a... I guess a gateway to Terrence Stamp as an actor for me too, actually right. going back and watching stuff with Terrence Stamp in it because he was seemingly new to me. I hadn't seen him in anything at that point in time. So that was great. Whereas obviously Elizabeth Shue, I'd seen her in everything growing up, you know, karate, not quite like how you see her in Link though. Yes. <laughs> um, which was a real eye opener. <laughs> so you did, you, you bypassed something like Superman as a kid? Oh, you know, of course, Superman. I actually only revisited Superman recently purely because of the whole, um, I'm on a Hackman binge at the moment. Cool. So um, I've got to watch all Hackman regardless of whether it's um, something amazing. Like even, if it, even, if it's, even if it's canon Superman, the fourth one. <laughs> yeah, well, I did watch Loose, uh, Loose Cannons with um, Dan Aykroyd directed by Bob Clark, the famous Bob Clark yep. and Paul Keys and Black Christmas. Mm -hmm. And Loose Cannon, sadly, is a far cry from any of his um catalogue of films but uh yeah but when you go i think when you go deep with an actor or a director you kind of got to explore the complete filmography you can't just sort of pick and choose you've got to watch it all yeah um it gives you a deeper appreciation for 
stuff they did extremely well and it gives you an appreciation for the point in their career they were at the time and why they may have chosen to do that particular project um but yeah so like when i'm in deep i'm in deep i watch everything and uh, I, I'm yet to revisit Heartbreakers with Jennifer Love Hewitt and Sigourney Weaver, but it's on the list. Um, I'll get there. But again, it's a confidence man film, so that's another favourite sort of genre of mine. Is you know, did he um, was he in Shystus. was he in there was uh, the Mike Nich- Mike Nichols did like a reinvention of La Caja Fold in the end. Isn't he the the conservative? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. The Birdcage. The Birdcage. Um, Nathan Lane and uh, Robin Williams. Yes, yeah. Jesus. Absolutely. God. Again, that's on my list as well. And Diane. Diane. Diane Waste. Yeah, Diane I think she. Weiss, I think she's severely Diane underused. In that's that it. Yeah, no, that is on the list too to get to. But admittedly, I only saw it once on video and wasn't super plus by it. And it was a, you know, it was that era where basically the Americans remade anything that was um, remotely popular in Europe or France, you know, Three Fugitives, for instance. Yeah, it's just, just bizarre that the, the musical hasn't had a film adaptation, which is which is always, you know, dumbfounded me. The um, the Harvey Feistein, Jerry Herman musicals never had a film Why? adaptation. Yeah, I don't know. It's very strange. But, um, yeah, that film was very underwhelming, The Birdcage, because I remember, because <laughs> I love Mike Nichols. Um, of and, course. Yeah. And even into that period of the 90s, I think we're both big champions of Wolf from 94. Oh, God, yes. Um, yeah. from Spade. Oh God, I yeah. Talked about Nicholson, but Spader. Yeah, absolutely. Spader in that career, you know that part of his career where he was just a prick. Yeah, you know, I love that. I love that. I love that how he went from being the prick into being a nice guy, and then now he's just, I don't know. Now well, he's, you know, a lot of TV movies. On TV the topic series. of Spader, one of my favourites of his is a made-for-TV movie called The Killer in the Family with Robert Mitchum. And he goes from... A, so, basically, it's three brothers. This is, get this as a cast, it's uh, as brothers. It's got um, James Spader, Lance Kerwin, and Eric wow. Stoltz as three brothers. And they're all the sons of um, Robert Mitchum, who's like a no-hoper jailbird, who um, is planning a breakout. And what happens is the two younger brothers are kind of already fuck-ups, but the James Spader characters, you know, he excels in school and he's trying to do good but then he becomes the full-on sort of crazy one as the, as the plot progresses because he ends up becoming someone who gets a taste for the crime element or you know becoming a killer and he's terrific because he starts off as a nice sort of good guy and then ends up becoming a prick <laughs> but you know he did that really well like even in Endless Love which is one of his earliest films he's Brooke Shield's brother and he's like you know prissy and you know not not exactly the most likable guy and then and that keeps going but then Tough Turf he pops up as kind of the you know the the hero and i love tough turf yeah. that, that was weird actually because that was that was what tough turf would have been about what 85 yeah i think it's a year after children of the corn which the director did before right okay that makes sense because they're both new world films as well so yeah memory yeah, yeah. And it's funny too because you had spader doing that type of role where he is this um out of town kid that comes into this environment where he has to, you know, sort of fit in, but at the same time, he's not willing to kind of compromise his own identity to do that. Mm-hmm. And in the process, he manages to change um, Kim Richards yeah. from Real Housewives of Beverly Hills yeah. and, and, how, and Assault on Precinct 13. But, um, and, and don't forget Devil Dog Hound of Hell. Of course, of course. How could we forget? <laughs> but I was going to say that very same time, I think maybe even that same year, if not a year prior, it's about the same year he did that film, um, the New Kids, which had a similar sort of story about two 
kids from out of town whose parents die. One of the parents is Tom Adkins, who's in the movie for like five minutes, if that, heartbreaking. Um, With Laurie Lachlan, when she was peak beauty around the same time as My Secret Admirer. Mm -hmm. And those kids move into a town where they have to live with auntie and uncle and, you know, sort of assimilate to that town and how they are. And James Spader is one of the bad kids that um, takes a liking to Laurie Lachlan, um, pretty much tries to rape her. Mm-hmm. But then him and his band of hoons um, terrorise that family and the two kids and it all climaxes in an awesome um, fairground sort of uh, scene. But it's a terrific film. But again, Spade are really nasty and that with bleach blonde hair and uttering the word, the C word. I'm not sure if we can say that on this podcast. But anyway, <laughs> he utters it with such menace. But it's funny because you had him doing that, you know, that um, duplicity of roles in that period. And, you know, obviously Pretty in Pink was around that time as well, where mm-hmm. he's a complete asshole and mm-hmm. convinces Andrew McCarthy not to, um, you know, go with Molly Ringwald. She has to fall back with John Cryer. Um, got a big soft spot for that uh, film. But, yeah, Spader, he's just incredible. Like, he truly Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I don't know how we yeah. got to talking about him. I think we jumped from <laughs> Mark Nichols. But I, I love him in Wolf. And I, if you re-watch Wolf yes. and then watch it simultaneously with um, Company of Wolves, um, the oh, the actor who yeah. plays the um the the sort of the the huntsman werewolf at the ending that seduces Rosalie and in turn she becomes a wolf with yeah. him, his his mannerisms definitely feed into Spader's performance. There's a whole thing where he wow. yeah if you watch James Spader when he's just sort of becoming lycanthropic and he's inter, in, uh, interrogating uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, he starts to twitch and do this really beautiful sort of gesturing like a dog does when you sort of talk to them, wow. and it's very similar, very likened to the guy that who was a ballerino um, in Company of Wolves doing that sort of same physicality it's really beautiful to watch them simultaneously because they're quite nice performances that and they're kind of nice companion performances there but i love i love to literally do those back to back now because i I only watched wolf maybe two years ago i think Mm. when indicator put out a blue yeah so nice stunning yeah it looks magnificent um but it's been a while since i watched neil jordan's company wolves and it is my it is my favorite of neil jordan's work and i think that Mm. guy is such an incredible filmmaker um and he's still making interesting films. Mm. Um, Neil Jordan's just yeah, a sort of uncompromising filmmaker. I really like it. Yeah, even yeah, if, I really if, like what he's done. Absolutely. Even when he's on like a big, you know, studio piece like Interview with the Vampire, he really held to his own vision, even though that was completely friggin' ravaged by, you know, <laughs> in, input by so many different forces that of be. Um, of the, so going back to our commentaries that we've done together, yes. we've done Link. Um, we also did, because um, I want to tie back to um, something that you did on your own. So uh, how many how many commentaries have we done together before you have done your first on your own? Because your solo effort is coming out soon-ish, I'm guessing. It, it kind of is. I, I actually literally just signed the release form a few days ago, which is weird because I recorded in September last year. Um, <laughs> but I've just signed the release form. Um, which interestingly, the release forms with Lionsgate, so I can't really say what the film is yet. Oh, okay. Um, big studio um, that's distributing it through one of their sub labels. So, okay. But yeah, that that was that was the first solo commentary um, track I I've done, and the only one today. I'm generally doing them with other people, and it was it was an intense challenge. I felt like calling you constantly when <laughs> I was doing it because I had I pretty much recorded three quarters of it and realized I was running dry on my notes, but right. I also realized that I'd probably spoken at a million miles an hour. So I went back and re-recorded it and much smoother the second time around. It even was able to um, digress a little more, I think, um, 
which yeah, it was challenging that first time doing it because you, I guess you're not kind of, for me, I wasn't kind of aware as to where my tangents would end up because I didn't have anyone to kind of cut me short on it. Right. So I was like, um, but yeah, the second time around, it kind of came together, but it's, yeah, it was really exciting doing it and I can't, can't wait for the release. Yeah. I can't wait to see it. Another childhood favorite for me. Yeah, yeah, cool. Good stuff. Mm. Um, it is fun to bounce off another person, absolutely. So we've done so Link and we've done um, Jenny, which is a Marlo Thomas film with Alan Older. Um, we've done Baby Blood, the 1990 <laughs> French gore film, which is stunning. Um, I rewatched that actually um, uh, after sort of, you know, working on it with you. And, yeah, blown yeah. Up, like loved it even more. Uh, just It's a really, really cool film, really kind of, you know, um, relentless, you Absolutely. know, gore-soaked Absolutely. I think thing. it is. That, is that, that, and that's another one of my kind of favourite genres, even though it's, um, I don't think we even discuss it on the, on the commentary as such, is that whole escalation factor film, like yeah. where you've got, like, um, After Hours, the Scorsese film, you yeah. know, or... Um, I'm trying to think of other ones, but where one event leads to another event and it just spirals yep. and you're watching it like almost in real time as the things move through and it's just the most unrelenting experience because at the end you just you just like kind of catch your breath and you're like, wow, that was crazy. Maybe I should do it again. Yeah. Um, but I, I since we did the commentary, I haven't admittedly haven't gone back and watched Baby Blood yet. I've been meaning to because I've got the Kino Lorba Blu-ray waiting there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've gone back and watched Link since, which was terrific rewatching it and actually watching all the other content that was on the disc. Oh yeah, um, that, that they, they put on there. Absolutely beautiful which is stuff. Amazing. Yeah, that was care of Mark Hartley. He had access to that stuff. Yeah, I believe yeah. so because he was a uh, friend of Richard Franklin before um, Richard passed. So I think That's he right. he actually inherited. Uh, quite a bit of stuff. So oh, it was good that lovely. he was able to put it to use and share it with everybody. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Thank God. Like, that's a really yeah. good stuff. Um, the other one we did, what else did we do? I'm bloody going blank. To get... I, I feel like it was oh. Jenny. I think, I feel like we've, have we only done the three together? I don't think so. I think there's one more. Have I feel like there's it? one more. I think it's like a, oh my God, I've gone blank. I am so sorry. I should have had the list written down. Let's have... <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like there's one more. I really do. So maybe if someone out there can remind yes. us, that would be great. <laughs> but I do distinctly remember one more because I feel like there was another time where we got together and discussed a yeah. film. We were both excited about people involved in the film. We were ranting about different things um, in the pre, um, pre sort of, you know, research mode that we yes. were doing. But I can't remember for the life of me what it was. Um, but yeah, so what else have you worked on as far as, uh, home entertainment releases? And then I want to start talking about Monster Fest and Monster Pictures and what you're working there. But outside Uh, of Frog Dreaming, um, let's, uh, let's talk about other things we worked on that are rep films. Yeah, of course. I've done, I, I, like, like you just mentioned, I've done a lot of contemporary stuff, whether it's EPKs for upcoming movies Mm -hmm. or features for films that have just sort of come out. But, um, in terms of rep content, I've done quite a bit of stuff with Umbrella that ranges from... Uh, I did uh, Death Warmed Up. I did an interview with David Letch, who plays Spider in the film. Mm -hmm. Now, that was actually shot by another chap that uh, was in New Zealand at the time, but that was sent over to me, and I cut it and turned it. It's actually probably one of the best things I think I've ever worked on because I I have a really huge soft spot again for that movie because that movie was banned in Queensland. Mm -hmm. And I lived in Queensland from age five through to 22 or so. Uh, So I was there during that Sergio B. Occupedison era when... 
anything that was good got banned. Yeah. Whether it was The Last Temptation of Christ from Scorsese yeah. or whether it was Slugs. Yeah. Um, these movies were banned. So uh, it was weird that Death Warmed Up had been advertised on CBS Fox video releases and I was amped to see this movie, but just never came out. And so it wasn't until probably in the mid-90s that I got to see it when I rented it from Trash Video in Queensland, which was a video store that Andrew Levold ran. That's when I first met Andrew through that video store. Mm-hmm. But doing that featurette was terrific because it was kind of like a homecoming. It was like, wow, you know, the kid that couldn't see the movie because it was banned in his state gets to work on a special feature for a Blu-ray release. Like That's a great. Worldwide Blu-ray debut. Um, that was a lot of fun. And then I did uh, worked on... Vincent Ward film The Navigator so that was put out by Umbrella and they put out a, a release that was in my mind the definitive release of the movie because they actually got content with Vincent Ward um, and I cut together an interview for, for that with him that was that was a lot of fun and then there was gosh what else oh, I did a, an Aussie film um, which unfortunately only got a DVD release which was a shame called Goodbye Paradise which is kind of a very pulpy um, detective noir film that was shot in uh, Surface Paradise back in the early eighties. So, yeah. Um, so, what did you put? What was the featurettes on that? Um, that that was a director. That was a featurette with the director. That was an interesting one because the trouble with it was that he had. It was a very career encompassing featurette. Really, we talked about everything he had done mm-hmm. with a heavy focus on Goodbye Paradise, but um, he did speak at length about being um, kicked off Bluefin. The movie Bluefin, oh, right. which was, which was quite a different book from Stormboy, but from the same author. And subsequently, uh, the producer of the film didn't really want an adaptation of Bluefin so much as they wanted Stormboy too. So he he went to he kind of came out and told the whole story about it. And unfortunately, we had to kind of cut some of that out and down. Um, right. And that wasn't at the behest of him. That was, I think, it was more so. Uh, they didn't want to ruffle any feathers, partly the distributor umbrella because they do have a really good relationship with the South Australian Film Corporation and the producers. They just thought it was probably safer just to, you know, keep it a little bit more contained. But just seeing some of that content and how he felt about it and how he spoke so passionately about it mm-hmm. at this present day is something that obviously stayed with him. But it's obviously something too that helped him as a filmmaker because he went on to make you know, the AFI award winner, careful, he might hear you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he went on to big, you know, big productions. He went on to actually, he crossed over to Hollywood. I think he only did one picture there, but he did The Seventh Sign with Demi Moore, um, which is a pretty cool film, you know, um, cool in concept. Yeah. Uh, but that was another one I did. But the Judaic-themed Ju- Ju- horror, you know? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. And it was... See, I love, I love Blue Fiend. I, I, you know, I wish... He, did he have good things to say about it? Because I love the writer, um, Sonia Borg, um, he, the screenwriter. He, he absolutely. He had he had great stories to tell of his time on the production, mm. but he said it was it all kind of fell apart at the seams when it came to the rap party. At the rap party, oh. it became abundantly clear that they weren't really happy with the film that, say, he had made. Mm. And so subsequently they did a lot of extensive cutting of the movie and he was he was not allowed in the editing uh, room at all for it. Wow. And I think they brought in Bruce Beresford to actually do some reshoots to make it more, you know, sort of a family film and right. less, less of what the actual book was about. Uh, so, yeah, he, he had pretty... Um, pretty hurt feelings about it understandably um but 
but yeah, but I said the experience of filming was terrific. It was just when it came to post-production, that's when it kind of fell apart for him. And uh, yeah, so Jeez. really, really quite sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's... The things that you see, like, I mean, there's nothing there that I'm saying that's, you know, confidential by any stretch. He said it all in the interview yeah. and I'm sure it's documented elsewhere. But uh, sometimes when you do do these featurettes and you do decide, like when you're, not even when you're the uh, director of it, uh, and you're going in with the questions, but when you're actually editing and reshaping it and turning it into something with, you know, a structure so it tells a story and uh, people can engage with it and it's not just, you know, talking head question after question, uh, you get to see a lot of stuff that doesn't make it to the finished, you know, cut. And that extra stuff you see is fantastic because you really do see these, you know, these artisans talking, you know, from the heart about, experiences and just sometimes you go well as much as that's fascinating it just it doesn't fit the core of this particular story so it'll have to go Mm -hmm. uh and there's bits that i've fought for over time whether it's been me as a director or me just as an editor to go look i think this really need be included uh and you know a third party kind of come in go no look you know, it needs to be shorter because basically we've got this much room on the disc and that's how Mm -hmm. short it has to be Mm -hmm. you could lose this or that or it could just be you know, yeah, sometimes there's stuff that obviously I, I don't think is that integral to the story and I don't see the point in including, but that's the beauty of having that kind of collaborative relationship with some, you know, third parties, whether they're producers or the label, because um, I've had I've had a pretty good run where more often than not what I've done and I've turned in is that's perfect. Uh, and every now and again, there'll be someone that wants to help kind of reshape it and I'm really open to that because that's part of the uh, you know creative mm-hmm. collaborative relationship. And then there's some really great people at some of the labels too, um, where it does have to go through a series of clearances and it has to go yep. through to the talent for them to clear it. Uh, and they might not be certainly happy with something. Maybe it's maybe it's something as simple as a transition of a shot. But mm-hmm. you're kind of the filmmaker now, and you sometimes you get a label that will fight for that point with the you know the talent to go no look this we think it's this way and da, 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 da. sometimes you meet them in the middle but regardless it's all it's a great learning curve like i said it's it's just awesome to see that extra bit of footage and get that extra little bit of you know insider knowledge about something um even if it doesn't yeah end up in the final cut yeah absolutely so have you personally had like instead of like time restraints on like you know certain featurettes can't fit certain you know um width yeah. of bandwidth of a disc or whatever but other than that have you actually had um you know say for instance if you've interviewed certain talent um them kind of going oh you know in retrospect maybe i didn't want to say that can you please not have that involved or can you cut all this stuff that kind of thing where they kind of regret what they've said or maybe rethought what they've said and don't really want it on a featurette as a final product absolutely yeah absolutely i won't name no i don't <laughs> someone that made a joke that likened um likens a, a scenario to nazi germany okay and then sort of kind of made this thing well you know hitler was a person so you know even though he was flawed he was a person and and um yeah you know i think it was it was received okay when we were tuning it because we kind of understood it in the greater context of everything when it ended up on the feature in that first pass cut, they're like, yeah, I don't know if I want myself associated <laughs> with um, being, you know, um, pro-Nazi or something. Right, or hum- humanising Hitler or something. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's been there's been instances where that sort of stuff has happened. And then there's, occasionally there's someone that might tell a story 
and then realised maybe they shouldn't have said so much, like about how someone got a certain, um, you know, role on a movie, you know, and mm -hmm. how perhaps like, you know, a casting couch or something was used. And even though that person wasn't the person instigated, but was the person that said that's how they ended up in my movie, mm. um, that stuff has to obviously come out as well, unfortunately. But again, yeah, it's, it, it's really exciting hearing those stories. Um, and, you know, and I have complete respect. Like, I more often than not, when I'm going through it, I'm like, would you be happy, like, me personally, would I be happy with that being sort of documented now that, you know, that, that can be ripped and uploaded to YouTube? Anything you say can be sort of taken out of context um, when it's not part of that feature. So I'm always mindful of those things when I'm doing it. Like, is that something I would, you know, and... Um, and I think that's got me through most of the time. There's only been, yeah, the rare circumstance, like those two aforementioned ones mm -hmm. where people weren't sort of happy about it. Were you, have you ever been really surprised about someone being remarkably candid? <laughs> you're like, whoa, and you're like, okay. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like even, um, I was going to mention Frank Henenlotter. I did an interview with him mm -hmm. back in 2014, and it's brilliant because the interview that will never die, it's... I did it when I was on my honeymoon with my wife. My wife actually helped me on the day with the shoot. Mm -hmm. And we went to Frank Henelotta's place to shoot it. And it was for a basket case um, Blu-ray trilogy release that was coming out, actually locally. But it got shelved and they ended up just releasing them individually on DVD. But the featurette ended up on the DVD. And um, it was a really amazing, candid discussion with Frank. Like he doesn't sort of hold back and he's got so many great stories to tell. Um, but one of the best things about that interview was the pre-interview um, dialogue with Frank ahead of going to his house to record it about how we couldn't talk about Basket Case 2 and 3 because he didn't own those films. Mm -hmm. We could only, we had to stick to topic, we're talking about Basket Case. Um, we talked about his entire catalogue of films and we talked about Basket Case 2 and 3 at length. Like, I think right. Once I was there and we were in the, we were in that environment and he felt comfortable, but also I think too, once he realised he wasn't just talking to someone that was possibly looking just for dirt to put stuff out that someone that was generally interested he was really open to talking and i think we had an allocated window of maybe it was like an hour and we ended up being there for like two hours or so and frank didn't want us to leave like he was you know telling us like tips of places to go as well as showing us you know awesome you know collectible uh paraphernalia from some of his films uh so yeah he was, he was did really, you get really to cool. see belial yeah, i did i got a picture with him it's amazing too because he is uh, such a passionate guy that wears his history on his sleeve. Like his entire little apartment, which is a little apartment, but it's in um, Greenwich Village. So yeah. it's, you know, amazing location. It is decked out with posters, videos, um, prosthetics, you know, like Belial, you know, decaying prosthetic Belial. Fabulous. Uh, and it's just amazing. Like, you know, and you're like, that's, that's really cool. That's like Dick Miller, you know, when I went to Dick Miller's house and he was the kind of, you know, actor that was so proud of his body of work of films mm -hmm. that he had the posters on the wall. He had his dogs named after characters from Gremlins. You know, he <laughs> he really lived it. And that's one of those things that just makes me go, wow, this is amazing because there's so many guns for hire out there that have done jobs because it was paying at the time and they either don't watch them, they don't want to talk about them, they don't remember them. Uh, and, you know, that's kind of sad. And I have done one or two of those interviews where you've had to kind of coach the talent into telling stories that are documented because they can't really remember any stories. And it's not because of age. It's really, I think, that they never really had 
sense of pride or passion in that thing. Mm-hmm. So they've just sort of let it fall by the wayside. And so then you end up coaching them to tell you the story. And, and that's kind of sad when you have to do that. Um, Absolutely. It's sad so- too because you know that they're only doing it because at that point in time it may be a payday. Right. Um, <laughs> and that's what it's come down to, getting yeah. a paycheck to talk about something that you, you know, normally wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't even remember, let alone care to discuss. Yeah, and that's that. Yeah, I know. It's always disappointing as well for fans when you, you love the stuff so much and the people who created it or worked on it don't really give a shit that much. You know, yeah, exactly. it, it means exactly. much more to the fan or the, the you know the writer or the journalist or whoever than the actual filmmaker. But you mentioned the wonderful, um, legendary Dick Miller. Um, yes. Can you please share your story about having did? How did that happen? So Jarrett um, went and had dinner with his wife Danny. Um, they went to, to visit. Um, uh, Dick and his wife Lainey. Um, amazing. Tell me about that. How that event? How okay. that happened? Well, so that, <laughs> the origins of that are funny, actually, because there was a crowdfunder, funnily enough, for a documentary on Dick Miller called That Guy, Dick Miller, which made is by Elijah Drenner, who is Elijah excellent. Drenner, yeah. super talented guy who's yeah. pretty much producing all the special features for every label out there. Um, yeah, I can't wait for the um, the Olive release of Hair. Um, oh there's God, loads yeah. of stuff on that's amazing. I was a bit it's good to see that Oliver going all out again. Like, I mean, I know he did an invasion of the body snatches, the Don yeah. Siegel um, body snatches release, which is fantastic. Yeah. But um, but yeah, it's good to see Olive putting out these sort of like signature series type releases that have got an abundance of features. But yeah, he actually he ran a crowdfunder for it, and yeah. I had always loved Dick Miller growing up, like from having. My first memories are probably seeing him really in Gremlins and then you're obviously seeing The Howling, Terminator, seeing all the bit roles right then through to seeing like Bucket of Blood where he had, you know, a meaty role where he's mm-hmm. amazing. But And then seeing every single film that you wouldn't expect to see him, whether it was like some DTV looking film like Ghost Rider or whether it was on the deleted scenes of Pulp Fiction. And uh, so I always loved Dick Miller and my sister would always, if she spotted him in a TV episode or something or a movie, she would like be immediately like, oh, your boy, Dick Miller, he's in it, he's in it. And I'd be freaking out because I think in that time too, that was pre-internet. That was the 90s when the internet was in its infancy. So you didn't really have like IMDb. Mm. So more often than not, it was just, it was pure happenstance. You'd just end up watching something with Dick Miller and you're like, oh my God, this guy is literally in everything. And I think it was that case of not knowing the guy's name for a number of years until what, like carefully studying the credits of Gremlins or something and going, Dick Miller, okay, Dick Miller. Um, so there was a crowdfunder that Elijah put up to basically do, I think he was looking for finishing funds for the film. They'd shot most of it at that point in time. And so, yeah, I contributed to that. And part of that contribution was a, a dinner with Dick, which was wow. like amazing. So we ended up going there. <laughs> How much did you donate? Like Not, not that much. I mean, what? not that much. I, from memory, I think it may have been, I don't know if it was a thousand Australian dollars or a thousand US, but if it was a thousand US, the exchange rate must have been really good. Um, and I saw that as a, that, that makes perfect sense. And we were going to the US for something, I can't remember what it was. I almost feel like that was around the time I did the Frank Henenlotter interview. Right. Uh, no, it couldn't have been on the honeymoon. Maybe it was on the honeymoon, I don't know. Um, but yeah, we went to we went to Dick and Lady's house, and it was the day after Thanksgiving. It was Black Friday in the states, but they actually held off doing Thanksgiving dinner until we came. Aww. And his daughter, who is like a a chef, cooked us this most amazing Thanksgiving dinner with turkey. And I didn't even know there was 
you know, do you like the light meat or the dark meat? I'm like, light or dark? Right. Isn't this thing just like chicken? Um, <laughs> and we're drinking like Coppola Estate wine and we're talking about all these stories from, you know, Dick's career, whether it be, you know, working on Chopping Mall, whether mm-hmm. it's me asking him, you know, do you just happen to flip on the TV and you see yourself in something because you're in everything? Mm-hmm. And he said, before you got here, we were watching, we were flipping channels and the Terminator was on. I said, we have to watch it right up until my scene. Right. And so we ended up watching it. And I go, that must be insane. Just that, that whole idea of, you know, you're just so ingrained in pop culture. And it's, it's interesting because I love him as well. And I was, you know, yeah. I, I interviewed him a couple of times. Um, my, my, uh, the biggest, the chunkiest e- uh, interview was uh, for the Howling book I did. But he, just a beautiful guy. And what what's fascinating about him as a character actor, he's not just sort of in there and out. He plays really pivotal roles. Like if you think of something like New York, New York, He's the guy that oh, yes. he's the guy that you know auditions Liza and De Niro. Um, yeah. If you think of something like um, White Dog, he's like the animal trainer who has all that great banter, you know, who's really kind of integral to the plot. And then you have you know all the all the stuff that he's done as a bit, uh, you know, even in the howling, you know, he just absolutely he sets boss, up the rules. You know? Yeah, he yeah, sets up the exactly. rules. Yeah, just, so he's always uh, been someone who isn't just in and out as a character actor. He's someone who actually has a meaty, really, really integral yeah. part to serve the plot. And I think he does it. He does it beautifully. And also, um, I just did an interview um, with M. Emmett Walsh recently, and I was talking to him about um, character actors and how he was saying that he he calls himself a character actor, but he sort of does resent that um, character actor kind of implies that you do the same thing that you you know you're bought in as an M. Emmett Walsh type. And I feel yeah. that's not the case for Dick Miller either. I think he comes in with his yeah. own take on a character. It's not just Dick Miller. It's uh, definitely, yes, a Dick Miller type, but he, <laughs> yeah. he 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 invests something unique in each role. I feel absolutely, yeah. yeah. It, it, whether he is that sort of wise character, you know, that has some sort of integral knowledge, or he's just lovable, and I find mm. him lovable in everything. Mm. Like, I always, uh, you know, I considered him to be like he's like a cinematic dad in a way. You yeah, know, he's just so you just want to hug the guy because yeah. you know he's just so lovable, but. And Elijah did an incredible job. The documentary is just a really beautiful tribute uh, to Dick, and it was amazing that someone was able to do that before, you know, Dick sometimely mm. sort of passing. But, um, yeah, beautiful. One of the weird – here's something funny, though, that comes out of the, the dinner with Dick uh, was – I'd say to him, like, I'm not – personally, you know, I'm not a massive Quentin Tarantino fan. I, you know, I watch his films when they come out. I did really enjoy them in my early teens, um, but that was a long time ago. But I always was intrigued about the fact that I knew that Quentin had chased him for Pulp Fiction and written the character Monster Joe around him. And then when Pulp Fiction came out, uh, of course, you never see Monster Joe. He's referred to, but you don't see him. And it wasn't until I think it was actually the Laserdisc and the video came out and they had some deleted scenes. You saw Dick Miller in this Monster Joe. You saw the character and you're like, wow, okay, so they actually did shoot this stuff. And I said to him, I said, look, you know, um, you've been in a lot of movies. But undoubtedly, probably one of the biggest films that you were in, Pulp Fiction, you were cut out of. How did that? How did you sort of feel about that? And what was that experience like? And he'd said he was actually invited to the premiere of the film, and still at that point in time thought he was in the film. And he was talking to someone at the time, I can't remember whom. And Quentin kind of runs over and sort of taps him and goes, "Dick, look, I'm really sorry, but I'm just going to tell you this: we actually cut your scenes out of the film." And he said, and that was before we watched the movie. And he goes, and then we, we watched the film. And he said, yeah. And he goes, at the time, it was it was sad and disappointing because we were there and I was looking forward to seeing it. And he goes, but in the years that had gone by and as that film had gained so much 
you know, momentum as this cult classic, uh, he kind of felt cheated about it, particularly too because Quentin had headhunted him for the role and written the role around him, and then you know he's he's lost from the film, which is which is a damn shame. Yeah. But, and why was he not called Walter Paisley? Come on, Quentin. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean. Quentin's not shy about robbing things from every which way, so wouldn't it have made sense in that one aspect he'd paid a little bit of homage and <laughs> done the right thing? <laughs> um, it's pretty funny you mentioned that. I just I remember um, the Eli Roth. Um, sorry, we're gonna we're going on tangents, and we're allowed to. This is <laughs> this is our fucking thing. Um, the Eli Roth History of Horror doco series yes. and Tarantino's on it, and he actually rips a quote from Jan Oxenberg, the filmmaker, um, um, right. from the celluloid closet. There, there's a whole segment on um, the Eli Roth doc- documentary series on vampires. They talk about lesbian vampire cinema, and Jan right. Oxenberg talks about that in the sort of the the opening of the celluloid closet, the documentary based on Vito Russo's book from the early nineties. And uh, and she says, you know, our oh, friends will come up to me and say, oh, there's a really beautiful film with a wonderful romance between two women. All right, they're vampires. And Tarantino actually says the same thing. He quotes her verbatim, and it's like, okay, that's something that this beautiful independent filmmaker who has not nearly as much money wow. <laughs> that you've made. Quentin has said that earlier, but it doesn't matter. It's something that I just wanted to sort of get out there because I feel like <laughs> that's her quote, you know. Fuck. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Dick Miller, that is really beautiful. I think that's something to cherish forever. And you no doubt will. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was a delight. And I remember, um, it's quite funny, when I was interviewing him for The Howling, um, halfway through, he was like, what, what film are we talking about again? <laughs> like that. And then you could hear Lainey going, he's talking about The Howling. And it's like, oh, yeah. And he'd already been talking about The Howling. But it was really sweet. And, and I think... I. Feel like half of that was a joke, you know. Uh, you know, yeah. a bit of a huckster. That, that was really sweet, yeah. but just really fun. And I'm glad you got that experience with him. And so did, and your wife Danny got that experience with him. That's really important. That's lovely. I think that for her too. Although we probably, because I can't remember when it was. To be honest, I feel like it was maybe 2012 or so. We'll just say that. Um, and we'd been together for seven years, but uh, she hadn't been around filmic royalty to the extent of Dick Miller. Admittedly, I probably hadn't either. You mm-hmm. know, like I. I interviewed people and whatnot but no one that had had such a massive you know impact in cinema and you know is basically a a cinematic treasure so that was like yeah it was a really surreal and cool experience you know um spending that time with him and even talking to laney and talking about what laney had done obviously i'd known she'd had that little minor bit part in the graduate which was one of my favorite films Mm. but talking about other things that she'd done she was like a you know script supervisor and uh that on and script editor on freddie's nightmares the tv series from the late 80s and that was cool because i'm like well yep didn't know that and then probably should have brushed up on my own dv prior but that opened up conversations so we could talk about her career and whatnot as well so yeah it was fascinating and she was just she was just you could tell that she adored dick you Mm. know like absolutely adored him they were in love Mm. you know so in love and yeah and and being around that's just beautiful because you know obviously hollywood is a tricky place to have a relationship and to see a couple that's you know not only survived it but you know just love each other that much um yeah it's something different and beautiful yeah absolutely yeah what a man he was a wonderful man um absolutely so let's talk Monster Fest. How long have you yes. been working for Monster Fest? Explain to people what Monster Fest is, because not everyone knows what Monster Fest is, even though you'd probably want them to. <laughs> yeah, it's always a surprise, though, when you even when you're somewhere in Australia and you're talking about horror movies and you're like, and da da da, Monster Fest. And oh, what's Monster Fest? And you're like, are you serious? It's like, 
you know, it's the biggest Australian genre film festival. To a degree, it's the only Australian genre film festival. Um, but Monster Fest is a film festival that was established back in 2011, and it started off as the Fantastic Asia Film Festival, where it had more of a more of a slant toward Asian, fantastic Asian sort of cinema, like, you know, Gun Woman or uh, Tokyo Gore Police, things of that nature. Uh, but as sort of time went on within the first two years of it, 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 it changed its title and it broadened its scope so it could encompass more genre cinema. So that allowed for, you know, rep films to be, you know, um, spotlighted as well as the newest sort of freshest genre films coming out of either Australia or from any other country in the world. And now we're in our, this will be the ninth year, the Monster Fest. And I, I came on board initially doing special features with Monster Pictures, which Monster Pictures was the company that started Monster Fest. And they had started about a year prior to kicking off the festival. And they saw an opportunity to start a festival because they're like, we're, we're releasing these films, but where are these films playing outside of midnight programming, you know, at, at these sort of other film festivals where the, they can kind of get ignored? Um, there should be sort of more of a focus on these films in particular. We we know there's people out there. We've just got to get them together into the one room to watch movies together and build kind of a community. Mm-hmm. And I really like that, you know, that aspect of it. So when I was doing the special features, I started working um, outside of it. At the time, I was working with JB Hi-Fi at their head office, working in movies, of course, because where else would I work? Yeah. But um, at the time, I'd start shooting anything from the Q&As that, that way they'd either end up as online content or sometimes on the special features of the DVD releases and whatnot. And then it got to a point where I think that I was just sort of had such a collaborative relationship with them. They were bringing me in for meetings to discuss plans for the festival or even the distribution side of the business. And they basically said, look, as soon as there's a possibility to get you in full time, we want to do that. Is that something you want to do? And I was in a very cushy job with JB uh, they paid pretty good money. They got a lot of free stuff, you know, like DVDs and Blu-rays where most of my income goes. Uh, but the the idea of, you know, being a part of something with people that were very passionate about what they were doing was too big a draw for me. And um, when that opportunity came, I, I didn't even need to really think about it. I did, though. I quickly thought about it because I had to confirm with the wife. Uh I'm going to make a pretty big life decision right now. Hmm. Uh, and and she was on board and I, I sold it to her. I pitched it really well. And <laughs> I, think, I, I think they gave me the weekend to think about it, but I'd made my mind up almost immediately. And, uh, yeah, and so it was. And then I began on July 4th, uh, 2016, as a full-time employee with Monster. And I started off sort of working uh, primarily as the – guy looked after the website doing all the content like all the articles and putting together all the social media and doing all the special features and things like that and then that sort of led into programming for the festival Mm -hmm. uh and then since which now you know um last year i was a festival director in the queensland leg of the festival which allowed me a little bit more freedom to change up the program and bring in some things that we hadn't done in melbourne and weren't being done in other states uh, and, you know, host the Q&As and be sort of the go-to guy for, for the Brisbane leg. And, Ooh. yeah, it's been, it's been terrific. It's such a, it's such an, like, amazing, you know, experience, Monster Fest. It's a, it's a year-round thing whenever we're not preparing for the festival, which seems like we are, like, every week of the year we're, we're leading up to the festival. But mm-hmm. we're also doing, you know, special event screenings of, uh, you know, mainly current films and trying to get talent on board for those to either be there for Q&As or um, do some pre-records or things of that nature. And then 
the rest of the time we're scouting movies for the festival yeah. um, and bouncing ideas as to what would be a pretty cool uh, retrospective sort of program. Like we did some Carpenter films when they had the 4K restorations, you know, a couple of years back and we did, uh, you know, a Carpenter-centric trivia, Carpenter trivia, cool. um, which was a lot of fun writing those questions with Ben because we're huge John Carpenter fans like yourself. And so doing stuff like that, it was just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that and Monster Fest effectively now is... And we're, we're broadening it as we go. We've had to refine it over time because there's been different festival directors come in and things have changed. But we've always been committed to showcasing the latest Australian genre films as well as shining a light on some of those forgotten Australian genre films mm-hmm. like 1998's, uh, 1988, uh, Smoking If You've Got Them by Ray Bosley. Mm-hmm. And doing things of that nature as well as trying to coordinate panels. And last year, of course, you did a lecture at Monster Fest. Yeah. Um, on, you know, uh, TV, uh, was it? The very uh, special episodes, yeah. Very, yeah, and so, you know, you did that and that was terrific and then we did a panel with local sort of um, film commentators uh, and so we're trying to trying to do more of that stuff as well. So, so do you enjoy, do you, yeah, do you enjoy, obviously you enjoy doing all the rep programming, is that solely oh, your, God, yeah? I, uh, well, it's Ben and I, yeah. it's Ben and I really. Um, I love it, yeah, oh my God, if I could... If I could do a festival was half rep and half new, <laughs> yeah. I would. And I think we could. But um, yeah. but the I think the intention is always to move forward and shine a light, but also, you know, there's so much stuff that is coming out. Do you feel – I want to ask you this, crazy. and please yeah. be candid – um, be honest. Do you feel yeah. that a lot of film festivals, not just not just Monster Fest, but MIF yeah. and a whole every film festival that you've been to or yes. have experienced, do you feel the push for new film content is kind of a bit fleeting? So, for, for instance, for me, I can't actually friggin' remember many of the you know premiere screenings of film festivals. I really don't. Like my brain right. just goes, ah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't remember that film at all. Whereas all the rep stuff, say for instance, the Romero retrospective at MIF, the um, Joe oh, Dante yeah. thing, the yes, you yes. know even bits and pieces, even things that the arts festival would curate, like De- um, Deborah Nadulman doing the Hollywood costume thing. These are things oh, that yeah. really matter to me. Um, whereas like the big hoo ha about the big latest you know sweetheart film that everyone loves with the film festival yeah. circuit, I just forget about them in a month. Do you feel like that happens, or do you feel like there's longevity for certain films that you guys have programmed that have sort of stuck? around like say for instance human centipede mm. which is sort of built oh, of course yeah a bit of yeah, a absolutely. and i actually own that i don't know why but i fucking own it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a film that i think that has um it has a lot of uh you know classic um crazy scientists sort of you know uh motifs to it and things of that nature i think it's tough because the as programming for it i only fight for the films that i love and mm. uh sometimes i can be I can be the one out of four people that's fighting for a film and the other three may not necessarily see as much value in that picture as, say, I do. Mm-hmm. But it's it depends on how good a fight I put up for that film as to whether it makes it through and whether it makes it through from Melbourne to the rest of Australia's programming as well. And, and likewise, you know, Grant and Ben, uh, you know, do similar things as does Simon, you know, our festival director in Sydney, and, mm-hmm. and Kim, who helps with the programming as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it can be challenging... Uh, when I'm trying to push a rep agenda for things and trying to showcase certain things. And I think the worst part about it is this is kind of like a sad reality, I think, in, in Australia is people feel that if you're doing rep films, then there needs to be more of a purpose for doing them other than celebrating 
these great films and putting them back on the screen and trying to get more eyes on them. Mm. And, and also just trying to, you know, have that shared experience of a great film with people. Um, they always feel like it necessitates a guest, like you need a guest for that, to do that. You know, like if you're going to do all those Carpenter films, you should be bringing John Carpenter out. But uh, they don't necessarily understand what's involved and how often, you know, you do have a guest and you have them right up until six weeks out from the festival or mm-hmm. in some instances a week out and they can't travel because they're ill or they've some of these people are obviously still working and so they pick up a gig like in the instance of tom savini was unable to come out because he'd been lined up but then had picked up a gig so when when was, when, when was it, it planned to have him down uh, i think it was like 2014 or so wow. and there was like curated program around stuff he had uh, directed like whether it was Night of Living Dead, the feature, the remake, or an episode of Tales from the Dark Side, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Plus stuff that he'd been in, like Night Riders, Dustal Dawn, all those sort of cult staples. But even Larry Cohen, you know, God rest his soul, mm. he only passed two last year, actually. Yeah, heartbreaking last year. Um, you know, we we had him lined up to come out, and that was one of the first Monster Fests, and there was a big program built around his um back catalogue but unfortunately he was too ill to travel mm-hmm. and that was only I think that was only like a week or so out from the festival which was a bit of a heartbreaker. Um but again we were able to celebrate his work uh two years three years ago. So when you say little... when you say they, um yes. um as in people uh you know these the this the whatever the, the I'm guessing the sponsors, right? Or people um who will give you money, um they're the ones who are kind of a little bit skeptical about doing retrospective stuff because I don't understand uh, why well, or it's, it's yeah, well it's it, for most for the <laughs> most part it's all coming out of our pocket. Mm. Um like we do put the sponsor the sponsor dollars go toward pretty much the entire festival and then we've got to allocate where we're going to spend those funds and what what's sort of remaining for guests as such and i think more so it's like an internal battle because we all we all you know we're all backing one you know one horse that may not be the same or we all are on one side for that for that talent and then you put the call out and either they're not interested in traveling because you know australia's quite a distance Mm -hmm. from overseas and you always kind of want to go with a guest that maybe isn't working that much at the moment given that they're going to be available to come out but then you're also wrought with the idea of if they're unable to travel because they're not well or things like that like toby hooper was another filmmaker i know the guy has chased for quite a while and that got close but then mm. he, he just knew he wasn't going to be able to make that long a flight yeah um and i mean he'd been in ill health for quite a while yeah. so uh, but yeah so there's those sort of circumstances but then yeah we did like when when we have an opportunity when there's like the uh, King Cohen documentary came out about Larry Cohen, a fantastic yeah. doco that yeah. Ben and I saw in uh, Fantastic Fest. We'd already been eyeing it off, but we saw it at Fantastic Fest. We spoke to Grant straight away. We've got to get this documentary. We spoke to the filmmakers. We'd locked it before we'd left Fantastic Fest. We were going to have the Australian premiere of it, which was fantastic. Um, and But that was gave us the ability to be able to do a Cohen um, retrospective, albeit in a you know movie marathon fashion, but we screened selections of his catalogue uh, in an all-nighter and that was great too because we did some staples the ones you kind of expect like the stuff or cue the winged serpent but we also did stuff that you probably wouldn't expect like the ambulance or uh, return to salem's lot mm-hmm. you know cool stuff like that what about the, the what about the ignored werewolf venture full moon high, oh, I love full moon <laughs> high. I've, I've always 
Do you know everyone always forgets the fact that you know how they always like coin yeah. 1981, the year of the werewolf with the were- yes. werewolf in London. Ha- yeah, <laughs> oh, and sometimes yeah. Wolfen gets in there, but Full oh, Moon yeah. highs there as well. Thanks. Of course, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I grew up on that movie, the old Roadshow VHS. You know, I used to wear that thing to death, and I'm so glad that we're in a day and age now where that film's been scanned, mastered, and released on Blu-ray. Is that? Now. I know. What a world. <laughs> <laughs> what a world we live in! It's a constant, constant surprise when that happens. Um, but yeah, you know, something I I live for, and that that's the. I think now we're, you know, people say that we've been in this golden age of home entertainment, and it's all on the decline. And sure, that might be the case for new release content, mm. new release films. Now that I think people value less because they more often than not may do a mini theatrical run or a festival run and then they'll go straight to cable not cable sorry like netflix or stan or something like that mm-hmm. so there's no real value place because there's no windows there's not like the windows we had when we were growing up where a film played in cinemas for how long it could play it could play for six months it could play for two years yeah. in some instances you had all those films that played throughout the 70s but because video really didn't come about till the very late 70s in australia they didn't make their way to video until the mid 80s like i was just looking the other day like the manitou that movie, made in 1978, played theatrically, didn't even come out on video in Australia on Embassy Entertainment until 1985. And you're like, wow, that's longevity, you know? That's And then it took, what, it took like 35 years for it to make it to to um, disc, to Blu-ray. Yeah, it's a beautiful you know. print, the Screen Factory. Oh, it looks incredible. incredible. And it's another, it's and another the... passion project that people worked on because they found, I think, that the audio materials didn't work, so they were able to go back to a Laserdisc release and get those laserdisc audio elements and rebuild them from that to make that. Uh, and it's, a, so, it's, it's inter- that film. Just bringing that up, it's like Girdler's last film before he died, right. and like you know, a major point in his career that he could have taken off where he could have gone to make a lot of you know really big budget films. It was like on yeah. the way to like Tony Curtis is in it and um, Susan Strasberg. But yeah, that was interesting. The what you're talking about with the delay of that coming out on video. I think it had. Well, yeah. I think it was tied up with things such as his his uh, death. Of course. Um, but yeah, really, so, really tragic. But so you know, it's okay. out there. <laughs> it's on. It's well, on Blu-ray. And now it is. Now you can watch it. But yeah, I think that the fact that there's these there's the lack of the windows these days, and the windows are getting shorter and shorter at the moment. We're obviously in this pandemic, so with all the cinemas shut, distributors are rushing films that were either intended to go to cinemas or dear play in cinemas straight to digital. So there's been maybe a month where they're in cinemas and now the cinemas are shut down and they're available digitally. Some films, they're cancelling that there's a new animated Scooby-Doo movie and now that's just going to go straight to digital, which is fair enough because it's CGI and it's not animated. So mm. I think you'll agree with me the probably best place it deserves to be is on digital. Yes. But, um, but with all <laughs> that happening, it's it's changing, I think, the perception of value of these movies. These current films are quite disposable because people, they know they're out, then they can get them. They mm. can get them any time. They're there. They don't build. They don't build momentum. You're not waiting six, twelve months. Or in the instance of ET, theatrical release in yes. eighty two, didn't come out in home video until what eighty seven, eighty eight. Yeah, I remember the big. I remember the day. It was a big summer. deal. I remember that. And also, um, Disney's catalog when Pinocchio finally came out on video. That was a massive deal. And then they lock it away. They'd have it out. Yeah, that's right. And lock it back in the vault. Yeah. So I think with all these things that have changed, the, the perception of value on these newer properties, it, it doesn't really exist. So I think, yes, the golden age of home entertainment for new release content, where you're going to get the feature-laden release of some new film that was in cinemas three months ago, mm. may be gone and maybe it's coming out bare bones. Maybe in some instances it's going straight to Netflix or VOD. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a golden age for 
for good classic cinema, like everything. Absolutely, else. I remember He's the, I remember the opportunity. The, yeah, and I'm sure are the people that keep the films alive, and now they can mm. get what they wanted their entire lives. Exactly. I remember when DVD just first hit, and I was like blown away. A, you could see the films as they were supposed to fucking look. Oh God, yes. So you're not dealing with tracking issues. I know everyone romanticizes video, and we'll talk about that in a second. And I do as well, but mostly for the nostalgia factor and the artwork and the boxing and that stuff. But really, watching those like watching VHS is like oh my god can it just fucking play you know how it's supposed to look um, so when DVD came out I was blown away by the print quality and the sound as well as the features because the early DVD releases had all the uh, you know big classic Holly- classic Hollywood guy I am all the, that stuff that was from back catalogues this is like stuff made yeah. ages ago like that you know Fox turned out or Paramount turned out you know highlights on studio portraits or you know uh, a whole documentary on Edith Head and then just whack it on a Sunset Boulevard DVD double disc and it's like fucking hell this is awesome so that was a really big godsend for people like us and then Blu-ray comes about and it's you know it's even a step up so I think takes it to the next level yeah so I think you're absolutely right I think new release content new release films sort of die as soon as they're sort of out and and that sort of goes back to sort of maybe kind of proving my point about festival circuits really pushing the agenda of certain films because I, I really strongly feel they don't have the longevity that other films do I really do no, um, there might be some that sort of fall in the, the, the gaps and will, and maybe that's because they're attached to a filmmaker that's already established and has done really, you know, yeah. remarkable work. But other than but no, that... No one's talking about Paul Schrader's dog-eat-dog dog anymore, are they, <laughs> no. really, after that case? I mean, we programmed it because it was Paul Schrader. Right. Um, of course you're going to program it, but then um, no one talks about that movie anymore. <laughs> you know, and understandably why it wasn't. It was far from his best work. But right. you're right, like festivals, I feel... Not so much us. We we, we don't really no. have set quotas for anything. We do try and include as much Australian content as we can, but we are selective about that content. Mm-hmm. And I might like something that's far from perfect, but I see the passion in it and I see the originality in it. Mm. And that sometimes can, um, you know, even if it's rough around the edges, that, that doesn't matter because I think the soul of the movie is perfect. and. Mm-hmm. That deserves a deserves a spotlight, and others may not see that in the programming, and vice versa. There might be something that I find painfully, um, uh, what's the word for it, um, pretentious, really, and I'm like, God, you know, just make it entertaining. Don't try and be, you know, uh, a you know a wanker about it. Just, yeah. just you know, make a story about people or something, something that that's interesting and matters. Don't just make all these shallow, nothing visual. Uh, soundscape experience movies yeah. are just flat and you know to me tell a like, story don't give an don't give us a you know precisely. an idea <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah absolutely so and I think yeah I think there's a lot of major festivals out there that have quotas to fill whether it's um, they've got to have a certain amount of films that come from different countries mm-hmm. they've got to have films that are from first time filmmakers they've got to have you know different films from different whatever. And I think that do you guys that fall into happens. that? Do you guys yeah. have to sort of fit quotas? Like, do you? I mean, you know, we've discussed things like you know, oh, yeah. there's got to be quotas from certain countries or um, gender representation behind the camera or blah blah blah. Do you guys have to sort of deal with that kind of thing? You- we 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 don't have quotas, and and now we don't because the last two years we've run the festival. We don't have any government backing, so we right. don't have any money from Screen Australia or Film Victoria with the festival. Right. So we don't have a. Uh, an agenda that we have to play certain films. So we always are, we always want to represent filmmakers, but we also don't see that, say in the instance of female filmmakers, we don't just see that 
female filmmakers and directors. We see them as writers. We see them as producers. We see them in all these different occupations that make a film a film. You know, the director isn't the, you know, the end all of a film. You know, it's all the people that are part of a film that make a film, whether it's a female cinematographer. So I think you've got to celebrate those aspects of film. So when people have picked on us at times for maybe not having enough female directed films, I, and I can tell you every year we do, we do, because there is great films coming out from female filmmakers every single year. There's just, there is just not enough of them. And that's not because, that's purely just because of filmmaking. You know, there's not enough female filmmakers being given an opportunity to make the films. And it's it's not about them not having enough films out there. It's just, sorry, it is about them not having enough films out there. Um, so that's the tricky part because you always want to be able to represent female filmmakers. And we were really lucky last year we had, I think we had probably one of our bigger years of female filmmaker uh, films, and one of them, you know, Sandra Scaberis, who's from Melbourne, who directed her sophomore film, The Dust Walker, and we were able to play that in Perth mm-hmm. uh, and Melbourne. And we also had the anthology horror, Book of Shadows, Volume 1, so that was great to be able to do that. But then again, like I said, there's so many talented female filmmakers working across the board, whether they're cinematographers or producers. Um, but, yeah, so we... we we always try and look for films, but we will we will look at everything, you know, everything. Yeah. Um, I want to ask and, about your process of um, selection as well. So let's yeah. talk about that. So the selection process, it's sort of, there's a few different aspects to it. We open up for submissions, so that's for shorts, features, uh, and We've never really had any submissions for like this sort of multimedia extended content thing. We did have someone that was interested in it, but it never really happened. But a lot of uh, shorts and features are submitted to us and they're from around the world. Uh, but we also actively, you know, source films from different festivals. So I was in uh, Sundance. I was at Sundance in January and I was looking for, for films there for us to program for the festival as well. And so we've hopefully locked on to at least three of the films that I really liked. One that I absolutely loved. I think it's probably one of the best films I've seen. Uh, oh God, I don't know. Uh, in recent memory, maybe in a decade or so, I just was really wowed by it. Um, and so, you know, I would talk to the sales agent or the filmmakers and try and gauge the interest and try and work out what their festival strategy is, if they knew where the film would be going next. Uh, because that's the other thing too is – we're always ahead with other festivals in Australia that aren't genre-centric festivals that are like your Melbourne International Film Festival, your Sydney Film Festival, but they have genre programs, so they're looking to, you know, um, curate those programs with the same kind of films we are, the best genre films from around the world. So you're always trying to see those films first, trying to lock in that premiere and then also try and sell the festival, why it would be good for them to premiere their film at our festival, say, to MIFF. Or somewhere like that, which, you know, Myth's terrific and they've got a lot of great films, but there is a lot of films and the films can get lost mm-hmm. amongst all just those to, films in particular. Just to, in, just to interject yeah. there, how hard is it to convince them to do, say, for instance, to premiere their film with you guys instead of Myth? Which, you know, they might be like, what is Monster Fest? How do you, you know, how, how oh, do you God, sort yeah. of... God. And I think the longer that we've been going at it, yep. now we kind of have a name producers and sales agents that they're like oh no we know about you you know we would love to do it or you know there has been an expression of interest from another festival and yeah sometimes they can be completely oblivious to what is happening in australia so 
they might look at MIF because MIF's pretty much going to give them a guarantee of three sessions at a certain you know rate or whatnot. Right. Um, we're paying the same price, but we may not do as many sessions. But MIF has a huge patronage. You know, there's a lot of passionate film goers that are going out. Some people that don't really go to the movies probably at all during the year, but will go and see as many films as they can during MIF because they kind of know that they're going to be <laughs> yes. What they perceive to be the best films that are coming yeah. out. So we know those kind of audiences. It's always funny. Oh, yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, the fleeting film to go on. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, and that, it's always tough competing with the other film festivals for those films. But it's really trying to build that rapport with, with the filmmakers and with the producers and selling the festival as this is the best, you know, home for your film. It's the best exposure you're getting to the audience. You're not having to cut through everything else to try and find your audience we've got your audience right here and they're ready to see your film mm-hmm. uh so it's a lot of that and in instances like uh grants you know gone to Cannes several times to try and do exactly that try and lock the films from an early point of uh you know that might be technically it's not a premiere there it's like a market screening so sure. the film may premiere later in the year in toronto or venice or wherever and uh establishing those relationships is the most important thing and that's what grant's been amazing at. he's got a lot of those people that he's talked to over the years and he's been able to prove that the festival has done the right thing by them and for their film uh and subsequently when they've got a new film in development they'll talk to him and that's sometimes there's been films where we've been on since it's been in development like color out of space for instance that hadn't even gone into production yet um, and Grant had been on about this movie, you know, we've got to get this film and, you know, going back and forth with XYZ or Spectrovision, whoever was the production company, uh, and trying to get that. And in the instance of Colour Out of Space, none of us actually had seen it, but we knew Richard Franklin, uh, you know, hadn't made a film for over two decades, but his back catalogue of film, phenomenal, you know, hardware, Dust Devil, and him doing H.P. Lovecraft and trying to do something he'd wanted to do for... You know, decades. Richard from, Franklin. Uh, did I say Richard Franklin? Yeah. So H. P. Lovecraft. No. Oh, no, no. Richard, sorry. Oh, Richard. Richard um, Stanley. Richard Stanley. I yeah. Know, I, I got. Yeah. Sorry about that. Richard Stanley. Uh, so they, these ingredients, and then of course Nicholas Cage. Yeah. That's great too. But the other aspects were the sell for us, and we're like, we've got to get this film, and that was a film that Grant had fought, fought for all the way, mm-hmm. right until you know. Until we locked it, announced it, and then weeks out from when we were due to screen it, it kind of fell into fell into this period where uh, there was a bit of a bidding war for the movie, and subsequently they could pull it from the festival um, if the distributor, you know, didn't want it to play there, and it was that kind of heart wrenching. Oh no, we fought for this movie, and now we've announced it because it looked like it was all good to go ahead. Like we've announced films, and then had to they've had to be pulled because. They did a deal with a distributor and that distributor's gone, no, we've got a different strategy for the film. Mm-hmm. And sadly, sometimes when it's a major, that strategy basically means that they're going to put it on a shelf and six months later, they're going to dump it to DVD. There's no fanfare or anything. And you're like, hang on, what was the strategy? Why, why did you hold on to that movie? There was no strategy. Um, but yeah, it's tricky. So selection is everything. You know, it's, yeah. it's from knowing people and being on, you know, on the lookout for these films even before they're made then seeing the finished product and sometimes of course you've you've really championed this project and then you've seen the finished film and you've gone 
it's just not going to work for us, you know. Right. Uh, so going back to your point yeah. about earlier where you, like say, for instance, Grant really championing Colorado space, which I hear is yes. amazing. I haven't seen it yet. You know it's me. Right. With- of course. Of course. <laughs> You know the the latest things I've seen is probably nineteen ninety two, but but no uh, the 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 thing with um you having to sort of push for a film or sort of really champion a film or really kind of you know get behind a movie. Can yes. you give me some examples? Um, and hopefully I've seen them. Um, yeah, I doubt you're going to have seen them, but two that I can tell you from last year. <laughs> <laughs> two, two I can tell you from last year. The first one uh, is a film that's just about to get released uh, in the US digitally, which is perfect timing for the film. And it's one of my favourite type of films. It's like an apartment complex uh, sort of thriller horror in that kind of Roman Polanski, the Tenant or Rosemary's Baby or... um, I've seen them. Or or The Sentinel, you know? It's like that really contained sort of story, but there's there's something happening there that's, you know, what what the hell is going on? Yeah. Um, that film's 1BR, this uh, debut film from a writer-director, David Marmel. And I, the first thing that spoke to me was the title. It was like 1BR. I was like, oh, my God, you know, I like the title. You know, I've got to know more. And I read the synopsis for it. And I said, this fans ten- sounds fantastic. It got announced to premiere at Fantasia. And that was its world premiere. And I was like, well, it's got to be great that if, if it's getting picked up for Fantasia. And then I think we inquired about it. And they sent us a scene clip. And I was sold on the scene clip alone. I was like, well, God, we've got to try and get this. And then we got the screener, I think, a couple of days after Fantasia, because that's generally how they're done. Sometimes they don't want them anyone seeing it before the world premiere. Mm-hmm. And we saw the screener, and I just loved it. And at that point, I think the screener we saw, still they were waiting for clearance on one of the songs that, they'd license, that they were licensing, and there was some work to be done on the colour grade, but it didn't matter because the essence, everything was there. It was, it was amazing, and I loved it. And I remember speaking to Grant and... Grant was really on board. He really enjoyed it, but he—he, he, I think I convinced him to love it. Uh, and then I think Ben was a bit on the fence about it, but I fought hard for that movie. And yeah, and then the producer came down from or came over from the US to come and do the Q and A and everything. And he was terrific, really lovely chap. Um, that was one I fought for, but then. I was just thinking of another. Okay, this is another one. See, I would have so fought. I would have fought for that one if it was called One Be Arthur. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, now that's the film that they need to make that movie. Maybe that can be the sequel, the spin-off. <laughs> it can be the Golden Girls verse. Um, but the other one that I I, I fought for was I watched two screeners on a Friday night. The only bad thing about watching screeners as opposed to seeing the films at a festival, you know, when you're when you're trying to curate things is you are limited to watching them on a screener, which is generally, you know, your laptop linked into your TV and you're watching it. It's great quality, don't get me wrong, but you kind of do lose the impact yeah. of the film to a degree when yeah. you're not watching it on Blu-ray or in a cinema. But regardless, if a film transcends that, then you know it, it, it really works. But there's this film I watched, and I got two screeners that night on a Friday night. The first one was the Fangoria-produced horror film called Porno. And the second one, which you would like because it's a period set film, although it's I think it's a period set in 1992, which is kind of your cutoff, so that might work for you. <laughs> <laughs> but the other do they do they do they wear mud honey t-shirts? Um, no, they're, they're all they're, they're all working as cinemas, so they're all in like you know, um, okay. you know, yeah, yeah, candy bar sort of outfits and everything. But the only it's a it's a dual screen cinema, and the only two is Mate and Amic in it working in a cinema. Oh my god, wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? God, if she's just brushing up the loose popcorn from the carpet and doing like, oh my God, yes. 
But um, the only two films they're screening at that cinema in that movie is League of Their Own and Encino Man. Okay. Um, funnily enough, but yeah, so there was that movie Porno, and then this other movie called at that time had a different title. It was called Something Else, and it got retitled down the track to After Midnight. I watched the films back to back, and I was skeptical about this movie After Midnight or something else because I hadn't really, I didn't know a lot about it, and it seemed like it was a, it was a bit of an indie movie, and I thought it could be a bit mumblecore. Um, whereas the other one was clearly going to be a sell. It was like a gross-out sort of throwback horror movie to, you know, those horror movies of the late 80s into the early 90s, the Peter Jackson, Sam Raimi sort of real gross-out, funny comedy horror. Uh, and I watched porno and I thought, you know, like, it's good, you know, it's good, you know, and it's definitely for our, you know, our crowd. There's going to be, they're going to love that. It's going to be perfect. Um, you know, I didn't love it, but I thought, I thought it was good. But then I watched this movie, something else, and I watched it with Danny. She'd watched the other one prior as well. And that movie had me laughing, gave me a tear, and by the end of it, I had literally jumped out of my skin. It had delivered on all these fronts. And it was just, I just couldn't really liken it to anything I'd seen recently. It just was this hybrid of genres, and it was a really cool film, like fucking cool. Mm -hmm. And then the following morning, I got a call from Grant going, did you watch the screen? I said, yeah, I did. And he goes, how good was porno? And I'm like, yeah, no, like it was, it was pretty cool, and da 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 da. And I said, but I'll tell you what, that's something else, aka After Midnight. That was amazing. And he's like, see, I didn't really like that one, but I knew you'd love it. I knew you'd love it. It's your kind of film. He goes, what did you love about it? And I went on about this movie for like ten minutes, and he's like, maybe I need to watch it again. He goes, because a few people have actually said that. Because at this point, none of the reviews, nothing had filtered out about it, so there was very little to know about the movie. So you're really, you're only basing it on a title and experience of watching it Mm -hmm. uh and again ben wasn't really super sold on it but i fought for that goddamn movie because i'm like no movies managed to make me do all those things in one one sitting in such a long time and then funnily enough my wife and i are usually on the same page with almost everything we watch almost everything but she was like at the end she's like i don't know why you liked it so much and i told her why she goes yeah i can kind of see that she goes just i didn't get that same feeling you got and i'm like you're kidding and I was just like, I was kind of shocked. Um, but I, it's reviewed really well since, and now it's available on... Uh, was that your first fight? <laughs> no, no I, I think there was another film we saw at a film fest that led to a fight, because um, it's normally a film that I might think was a bit pretentious, right. and I came out of it going, God, that was amazing. And Danny's like, really? And I'm like, what, you didn't like it? And she's like, no, and she really didn't like it. And, and that one kind of, that one came to blows, because I'm just like, I was shell-shocked. I was like, what are you talking about? And she just was like, no, I thought it was really like, it was pure exploitation. And, and I'm like, but we, we like exploitation. She goes, but not that kind of exploitation. I'm like, what, what is going on? Um, but yeah, so it's always good to have that. Um, someone that I can immediately sort of, you know, throw a film to and hopefully will side with me before I have to go in for battle with, um, with the other programmers. But yeah, yeah, so after midnight ended up playing, I think ended up playing every one of the festivals around Australia. And it was really cool in Brisbane because when it's a film I really like and I've really championed, I love being near the, you know, the cinema door exit. So when the crowd are kind of coming out, I try and ask people straight up, you know, you know, I want them to form an opinion and have some time to just sort of process and digest it. But at the same time, trying to like, you know, you can come back to me on it. Tell me what you think, but I don't try and uh, feed them. That was amazing. What did you think? I'm just like, Oh, so what did you think of the movie? And I'm just hoping that I'll have, one of those other people kind of have a similar feeling to me. And then you're like, oh, God, yes. You know, there's others out there like us. And, you know, we can chat about the movie because you're passionate about the film now. 
Now that after midnight, yeah. not to be dis- not, not to be confused with the horror anthology with Tracy Wells from Mr. Belvedere, which I really like too. That's terrific. And again, Scream Factory's put that out on Blu-ray. Yeah, like, it's stunning. Would see a Blu-ray release. Yeah, I, I really dig that. I really dig that. It's a great. And I love the Tracy Wells story, the one with the dogs. It's terrific. Oh, great. Such a cool thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Now, now I want to. <laughs> so uh, go, that's awesome thank you i love that insight into how you guys curate and choose and have yeah. a little little um you know <laughs> this, is, this is yeah battles this is my film this is what, I, what i'm championing oh, okay. but i want to go back to what we touched on earlier which um which you just sort of uh, referred to there with the after midnight screen factory release but home video yes. home media um and yes. you know the one that we all grew up with as um you know 80s kids VHS. Now, you oh, yes. and Rob Taylor run a thing yes. called, and Ben Halwig run a yes. wonderful um, web series called Video Hoarders, which is really fucking great and fun to watch. And it's just like, oh my God, you know, it's like watching it, it's like, oh fuck, I've got that one and that one. It's like, you know, it's like a yeah, nice exactly. little, it's a real kind of nostalgia kick, but also oh, a nice little sort of, <laughs> I'm going to say, it's a bit of a psychological insight into these people who collect them because I think Rob, Rob years a while ago asked me, about mine and I've sold a shitload and I got rid of a lot yeah. Um, yeah. simply for space but um, I've still got a fair few but it's like uh, these people are just insane like Ben Halwig's collection is just oh, d- divine like fucking hell oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember I'd that little- over, I'd say half of the house almost <laughs> It's uh, just, his house is yeah. pretty much dedicated. The entire what was once a living room, uh, yeah. a dining room, is now entirely a video store. Yeah, I mean, uh, besides books and films, which careful. I buy, you know, on the reg, the only thing I really collect are movie posters because they're nice and thin. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I agree. I, you know, I had a had a long standing uh, collecting of um, particularly daybills because they're even smaller. Yeah, um, Aussie daybills for a number of years, and I just had to cut it off eventually because. I have so many amazing day builds um, that I can only just take them out and look at them. Like, there was only so many I, I could hang at a point in time, I and I was even working out a system to interchange them and freshen them right. up. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I could never part with them though. I, I love them, you know. Yeah. I love the day so builds. talk about video hoarders. Video hoarders. Okay. So video hoarders is is effectively Rob's brainchild. Mm-hmm. I remember. I remember actually seeing the very first discussion of video hoarders and it was all online in a video collector thread on one of the Facebook groups, I think, maybe at the time. And I think Rob had put out this idea of like, you know, if someone were to do this, who would be interested in participating or helping to do it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are really actively wanting to be a part of it um, and, and actually help produce it. But then it was really only Rob that's um that made it happen you know like a lot of people have talked about it and i think people go oh you know i once thought of that idea but rob rob made it happen and thankfully he's able to go back to quite a few of these people and they would you know were willing to participate and appear on camera because you know some collectors are um you know they don't want people coming into their homes partly because they're you know they're private people they yeah. collect what they collect then there's also you've got to watch out when you're a collector and there's other collectors out there that will see the stuff you've got and then literally stalk and harass you until they try and make you break or fold to give up that tape for, you know, a price, you know, and there, there really is these people out there and we've encountered them. We've heard stories. It's insane. Like, honestly, it's crazy. There's one guy that we've heard about that will take a stack of tapes and leave them at someone's house at the front and then message them and go, that's the stack of tapes for you. Um, can I come around on Thursday and pick up whatever tape they want? Mm. And they say specifically, like, I, I didn't agree to this. You need to come and get these tapes. Um, 
you know, so people that bully people into Ugh. doing this. It's, it's crazy. It's like kindergarten or, you know, primary school where people... So you see the ugliness in, in it as well, which is, I like. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't like that it happens, but it's cool that you... Do you, it's, in the Video Hoarders oh, yeah. series, do you get to expose that? Because that'd be really a fascinating... Uh, Steve, well, <laughs> we kind of, we shy away from it a bit. Yeah. Like, I think we have a lot of off-camera discussions about things. There are things that are discussed on camera, but then ultimately we're not really the court, so... We don't want to go out there with information we've heard from, say, one person and not heard from the other party. So mm. we kind of, we leave it aside, but we, we always are interested to hear the stories. And there is a lot of stories mm. um, that kind of come up. And it's interesting because it is like a microcosm of society, you know, mm. this whole collective community. But the collectors, like, we've, we've you know, highlighted and showcased. And that, that's the thing, sorry, going back to, you know, Rob did this. He consulted Neil Foley at Monster about wanting to do this series. What if I do the series? You know, would you help? And uh, that's when I kind of came into it. And we're like, well, we're building this new website, Cult of Monster, and we could make that, you know, a showcase sort of thing. That's like something that we'll promote, that we sort of uh, will we'll screen, you know. So if you make it, we'll give it a home. And that's how it sort of started. So with that first season, all I was really doing was helping uh, Rob with all the marketing of it, getting it up online, you know, getting the awareness out there for it. And then I think I came on board toward the end of the first season, actually, in a production capacity and shot an episode, uh, which was a lot of fun. And then when it came to series two, I think Rob felt kind of burnt out by the whole process because he had, for the most part, been doing the whole entire production and post-production process himself and out of his own pocket. So, you know, it was it was really wearing him down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for all the time he invested in this series was time that he couldn't invest in you know, his own life, let alone, you know, um, working, you know, more hours and making a bigger income. So when it kind of came time to discuss a second series, I said to him, we should take it to a crowdfunding sort of platform, we'll work out, you know, rewards that are expensive for us to produce mm-hmm. so that we can give them to people, whether it's, you know, um, they come on board as a producer, they go thank you in the credits, Maybe, you know, we can do low run things like T-shirts. We'll do a video run and limit that to 50 and make it exclusive to this crowdfunder. And that's the only way you can get season one on video. Right. And so I kind of sort of stepped up in that regard and kind of became, I ran the campaign and kind of became the producer as such. And I sort of said to Rob, what if Ben and I were to come on as producers for series two? Mm-hmm. We'll help assist. So we'll do this, you know, this crowdfunding, uh, fundraising sort of measure. And then when it comes time to do the second series, will come and help with the production process so it frees you up so you can concentrate on your job of directing the program, hosting the program. I'll shoot it. You know, you're still in charge when it comes to post. You know, we've got Ben there doing sound and it'll be a better experience it not all being on your back. You've kind of got a shared, you know, um, shared, you know, sort of opportunity that it's, yeah, you know, a little less stress for you and, and who knows, you know, might inject some new ideas into it too, having some new people on board. Uh, so we did. We had a successful crowdfunder. We managed to raise, I think, about almost four and a half thousand dollars, which was enough to uh, guarantee, you know, a couple airfares as well as a little extra money aside for Rob, so he didn't have to miss out on not working as much to make an income, so he could, you know, be there editing the program because he spends pretty much his entire time outside of working, right? Literally working on the show, um, and it was terrific. So we got to travel around to Australia. Around Australia, you know, we went to. Uh, Adelaide, it was the first time I actually went to Canberra, and we met so many great people doing it, like some of these guys are the best, like one of my favourites is um, Daniel Cross, who has now opened a collectible store in Adelaide, which unfortunately currently shut because of the pandemic, 
but it is the most amazing collectible store where you can buy VHS, very similar to Minotaur in a way, yep. except that he's um, got VHS and things like that. And there's nothing really in Adelaide like it. And he's opened it up near a cinema there, the GU Filmhouse. And when we shot that episode, he hadn't done that. He'd only opened this business in February of this year. Uh, but he he didn't even mention it to us because we did an interview with him recently, just a you know a post catch up, and he said, "I want to tell you guys so badly, but like I don't want to be that guy that tells you big ideas and then it doesn't happen, and then you know feels like a failure." But he's made it happen, and it's phenomenal. And you, you do see that in that episode because the catch up we do, he does us a little tour through the store and shows us the store. But he was he was phenomenal. He made the experience of shooting an episode not just a fun. Um, production because it is always fun to shoot these episodes. He made it just a like it felt like we were all hanging out, you know, like he had beers on the ready that he called the beers work beers, mm-hmm. and he's pulling them out of the fridge and he's like, Jared, another work beer, and I said I'll take a work beer. And we, you know, we shot his episode and it was it was fantastic. And you know, the area that he had dedicated to his media and all that, whether it was videotapes, laser discs, um, collects a lot of um, like uh, fantasy novels, but like ones with barbarians and stuff because mm-hmm. he just loves the artwork and. Everything down to bong books and retro video games. But the guy is the coolest dude you'd meet. Like, he's a really cool guy. He's not just like a, a nerdy guy that has a lot of cool interests and a lot of cool shit. He's a great guy. And so that was his war room. And we're hanging out in the war room, having a couple of beers and, you know, shooting an episode of Video Waters. And that was, that was a really, that's one of those experiences that I'll, I'll always remember from the series thus far is like, that was really, really cool. And we can't wait to get down to Adelaide to go and see Starblaze Collectibles when it opens um, back up again to the public because we just want to hang out there and, you know, enjoy that sort of company, being around like-minded people. And But, yeah, it's, 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 it's terrific. And, you know, obviously growing up as a kid in the 80s, you know, the video store was my second home and I worshipped at the altar of VHS, you know. Um, so it's, it's been great to be able to visit collectors and talk about their experiences, the people that lived through that same period, or even the people that didn't get to live through it. Yeah. They're right there at the tail end of it, but loved the idea of it. So do you have, do, yeah. do some of the collectors, I've seen a few episodes, do some of the collectors yeah. um, uh, have a specialty in what they, they buy or what they've collected or what they've curated throughout the years or what they've, you know, bought from video shops oh or... Do you know what I mean? Like, are there, are there people Absolutely. who only collect certain, like, roadshow releases or they only collect CEL oh, yeah. or, or they collect certain oh, God, subgenres yeah. or, yeah. Yeah, all of it, all of it. You've got the label collectors, the people that only collect the old school uh, roadshow, you know, v, uh, ex-rental VHS, the mm-hmm. people that collect the 39 Palace Explosives mm-hmm. and are always trying to get to the 39. Right. Uh, you've got the people that have got, like that Daniel Cross I was telling you, he's got like different names for different things and he loves, like he likes the fantasy novels, he likes those sword and sandal epic movies, yep. you know, action movies, and he calls them barbos, right. you know, like barbarian movies, and so he's got like, a dedicated section to his Barbo movies Stunning. and era, you know, over here's my 80s TNA movie sort of stuff. Yep. Like that. And then, you know, you got Ben similar that, you know, he's got his collection in different sort of stages. He's got some in labels like CBS Fox and mm-hmm. that here, but then he's got his, all his Andy Sidaris films like over here. Most of them face out because they've got great illustrated artwork. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely, there's a lot of people that collect you know, even subgenres of things where they're like, you know, eco horror and things of that nature mm-hmm. and they group them that way. Um, and then other collectors that will just literally group everything by label. I think the most funny thing that I've seen is hardly anyone puts the movies in dedicated video store sections. Like no one's got like, this is where all the dramas are. Right. 
And, yeah. you know, they might have like a showcase section for the Barbos or the horror movies, but most of the other stuff is either organized by label or it could be like by a director, you know, like a Friedkin sort of section, you know, and he's directed such a wide range of different type of movies. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's always interesting to see how they, how they put their collections together and how they showcase them and people that are operating with like a limited sort of space and how they rotate things. So do you, what's your, what, the, what are the first videos you bought as a kid? Not talking about, oh God, not yeah. talking about buying stuff when VHS shops were closing down, you just fucking grab no, everything. No, 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 but no, as no, a no, child, no. when you'd go to Target oh, yeah. and you saw those releases that oh, were for sale, yeah. what, what did you grab first oh, and foremost? One of the very <laughs> first ones I remember getting was the Vestron video retail release of michael jackson's thriller mm-hmm. you know i got that as john well landis directed one that was just i yeah. remember renting it for the video store that many times by the time it turned up in kmart it was like i convinced my mum on the spot we need this and i think i got it for christmas that year and i've worn that and i've still got that tape to this very day um and you know i wore that thing to death because not only had the music video i had the behind the scenes and i think that's the only place that you can get those behind the scenes footage is on that tape someone's probably ripped it it's on youtube sure but it's not like that making of has made it to DVD or Blu-ray, as far as I know. Um, and that was that was that was one of the very first. I think I think on that very same shopping trip, my sister might have got Wham live in China. Wow! Um, and we might have both got them for Christmas. It was really exciting. But then the other one that really sticks with me is Stephen King's World of Horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was terrific because I loved those. I've still got those as well. Oh, I've got a couple terrific. of those. Yeah, they were like magazine yeah. magazine videos. Yeah type magazine video yeah, yeah fantastic and that had a huge thing about trauma and yeah. as a kid in the 80s i loved trauma it was one of those things i could never talk to people about because no one knew what trauma was right my, I, my mom i forced my mum to go and see the trauma 2000 film festival back in 1992 or 1993 because again no one knew what trauma was but about that point is when i could start showing people you know toxic eventual class and newcomb high or something like that but you know, that, that was my formative years. But those two videos were like go-to videos, and particularly at World of Horror, because I had so many books on horror cinema that it was great to actually have like a companion tape, mm-hmm. you know. But there was, outside of that, there was a lot of videos we used to rent from the video store and maybe make a, you know, a copy we could keep because you couldn't buy them. Mm. You know, I remember that. Like, I remember when they we got a second VCR so I could go and rent Halloween so I could you know, had my own copy of Halloween because there was no way to get it. I think it was before there was a, you know, retail release of it. And prior to that, the only other thing I had, it was my audio cassette that I put next to the speaker of the TV to record as much of the film as I could on a 60-minute tape so I could listen to it, so mm. I could listen to the score and mm-hmm. listen to the dialogue um, of the movie. But those two were the first two I kind of remember. And then, of course, you know, E.T., when it finally came out in video, was was something, you know. that that was That was an expensive video, but it was... Of, you know, a movie that I'd seen countless times at the movies. Yeah. Uh, so getting that on tape, but that was the, those days of you know retail tapes when it was it was harder to get stuff. But in my early teens, I think you know that's when video was still very much around. Of course, it was right around till the early two thousands until you know DVD well and truly took over. But yeah. there was a video store I used to go to that was called J and G Video, and the chap that worked there. He was able to get videos for me from like a video warehouse. So he'd just say, put together a list. And he was such the loveliest old guy and he wasn't profiteering. I was getting the tapes for like $10, which I I thought was extraordinarily cheap. And I would put the list together of what I wanted. And when he would go there, he would look for them. And every now and again, he'd bring some in. So it would be anything from, you know, Dario Gento's... 
Cannon Bray to um, Tony Scott's The Hunger or something like, you know, one that these ones are ones I hadn't been able to buy retail versions of. And, you know, I started amassing a collection of videos because I was happy that I could legitimately buy the films that I remembered with all the trailers on them as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, as time's gone on, like, like yourself, a lot of these films have made it to newer formats and I don't really need to know to own an antiquated version <laughs> yeah the film. i know there's there's certain ones i will never get rid of so for instance just talking about the first ta- tapes i bought as a kid yeah, i yeah, grabbed yeah. chomp i remember i've still got them and i've got them in a, in a box there's chomps this is how this is oh, how this is how varied i was as a kid and still am i guess yeah. chomps um uh the howling um oh, yeah. the big boss the bruce lee film oh, yeah, um yeah. a collection of um smurf uh, it's not smurfs um snoopy peanuts cartoons a, a, a videotape of a couple of episodes of masters of universe um the the wizard of oz the dark crystal and a couple of others and i remember grabbing those here and there i'd get pocket money and buy one a week and then i wanted to ask and also you talked about taping things off television with i used to do that all the time with with musicals so like i'd tape the songs off the cassette so i'd have the soundtrack yes yes (laughs) absolutely yeah Yeah, i would i did it right down to uh chicago's Hard to say I'm sorry from the finale of Summer Lovers with Daryl <laughs> right. Hannah. And, awesome. Um, I, I love that song and it took so long to get the 7-inch in a yes, record store, like a right. second-hand record store. But yeah, doing that stuff, taping, you mentioned taping stuff on t- off TV. Like one yes. of my favourite things that I taped off TV that I was finally able to upgrade a couple of years ago because I found it in a thrift shop in Austin, Texas, was um, the Michael J. Fox made for TV movie Poison Ivy. Yeah, cool. The mid-80s. And that was a film that I used to watch the living shit out of on school holidays it was either on tv or we'd be watching the you know the one we taped off tv and so getting that on tape recently i was like amazed and that actually brings me to another point is i i am finally deciding to get rid of a lot of the tapes that i don't you know i've got still got tapes that are in boxes that i i literally haven't opened since i've moved to melbourne which was god like 18 17 years ago right 17 years ago probably to the date and um, so I'm going through them and some are in, you know, less than wonderful condition because they've just been in boxes in shitty places over the last 17 odd years or longer. Um, but I'm going through them and I'm working out, okay, so look, that that's going to have to be binned because it's in bad nick. Oh, that's, that's in fine nick. Maybe I could sell that. Um, and for me at the moment, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm going through each of those tapes and I'm going, well, this... I'm happy to part with because I've, I've moved on. I don't need this. But before I pass it on, I'm going to go through and I'm going to, if I don't have this movie on DVD or it's not available really on DVD, I'm going to digitize it. So I've got a copy so I can pass on the video for the moment. If, if unless there's a, unless it's Stitches or Hamburger, the motion picture, they're not going anywhere. <laughs> um, but yeah. in a lot of instances, all I'm doing is I do own this movie on DVD or Blu-ray. Um, but I want to capture all the trailers. So what I'm doing mm. at the moment is I'm actually nice. I'm digitizing all these trailers that are seemingly probably a lot of these trailers are lost because the film masters for the trailers are gone. God knows where the tape masters are. Yep. Sometimes these trailers don't turn up on the DVD or Blu-ray release and sometimes they're not on YouTube. And I feel like as as like a responsibility to, I've got the ability to archive these things. Yeah. I should do this. Yeah. And so I've been digitizing these trailers That's and then I've awesome. been putting them up on YouTube and I'm building and amassing a collection of trailers there so that everyone can go and watch because 
They're promotional material. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I've, I went through recently, not that recently, actually two years ago, but I remember doing yeah. it um, where I grabbed a whole, I've got shitloads of tapes of stuff that I taped as a kid and teenager on television. Oh, yeah. um, and all the TV promo stuff just gives me chills, oh, like seeing all that stuff. And then also, you know, I remember leaving, I remember recording stuff, like say for instance, the Bill Collins thing, would he'd present one film and then it would be like Alvira's yes. thing right after. And oh, then after God, that, yes, there'd yes. be something else. It'd be like a third feature or a fourth feature into the you know wee hours of channel 10 you know programming wow, in the yes. 80s and i remember leaving tapes recording and you'd find oh my god here's um bill collins presents the beast with five fingers and then after that you got elvira presenting i don't know um the the, the giant claw and then after that you've got yeah, basil yeah. rathbone and friggin something so it just keeps going and it's like this is awesome and then also i've got tapes of the modified for television versions of stuff and oh i remember god, that yes. being really exciting seeing that the logo of modified for television remember the exorcist the, the way to, the, oh, to, God, to figure yes. that out was the first time Alan Burstyn swears on the telephone where she says um, I've been on this line for fucking 20 minutes or whatever she says if that was yep. cut you knew it was the modified version of the team, of the film yes, yes. Um, and oh, it was always like always cool to see and I'm so I love that idea of like archiving those because I've noticed on YouTube when poor old Bill Collins passed away legendary Mr. Bill Collins I was going through um, YouTube clips of his movie um, presentations and how beautiful they were like he'd have his own collection to show like lobby cards and books of the stuff and and then oh like God. he'd talk in detail about these movies and then um you know do spotlights on certain stars and then present them properly like you know with lots of love and affection it was just really sweet yeah so all that stuff you know i've got on tape um but it's the, just the archiving you know you don't want to get rid of that kind of stuff either and who the fuck would want it like really they're not they're not you know no one's buying taped <laughs> video stuff they're yeah, buying you know the clamshells and they're buying the yeah of course, but that's the thing, yeah, that all that archival content is such rich content that unfortunately hasn't been archived by the TV networks because it was, you know, it was for broadcast, maybe they would just play it for that one-off special, mm. maybe they would have it so they could repeat it at some point in time, but more often not, those tapes would be dubbed over and over and over and over, you know, yeah, over time, and as everything goes moved toward digital, like, what are they deciding to keep, you know? And, it's, and I hear all those tragic stories about even community TV, you know, that a community TV station put out a bunch of tapes, you know, the broadcast master tapes out into, you know, hard rubbish. And this guy's in there trying to salvage as much as he can. And they're yeah. calling the police to say this guy's, you know, but it, they're dumping it. And the sad part about that is that's all like community produced stuff where no one got paid, but yeah. people did it for experience or they did it for the love of doing it. Well, even like the ABC, lost. the ABC wiping oh, God, stuff. Yeah. Australia's got a notorious sort of rep- reputation oh, of wiping yeah, things. Um, you know, we just thank God America keeps things, ar- lots of stuff is archived. A lot of stuff isn't, yeah. but a lot yeah. of it is, thank God. Um, and, you know, I know a couple of people who work in archival work in the States and the access they have to stuff is just remarkable. Like, you know, oh, talk show stuff and, you know, uh, classic, you know, commercial stuff and, you know, just some incredible um, oh, it's, it's things. Oh, it's phenomenal. And, yeah. then, and that's, the heart, that's the only heartbreaking thing is that there's, there's this material that thankfully people have saved and has been archived, but then sometimes when it comes to doing a special edition release... They've had their eye on including this material in some facet, but then they can't get the, you know. Oh, the, yeah. Tell me the about permissions it. and get it yeah. signed off because of yeah, because it sits with so many different parties. Exactly. And some parties are passed. It sits with a family estate. Someone's looking for a handout. Yeah. And it's just it's heartbreaking. So I do kind of like that rebel nature of YouTube for the people <laughs> that are putting yeah. up that content because you know they're not. Re- 
ripping anyone off. They're putting it there because people need to see it. We all need to, you know, to know this stuff exists. And it's yeah, I mean, I I was living off a lot of the because I've got a lot of made for TV movies um, oh, on yeah, yeah. on tape, um, and then finally now getting them on DVD as they're being released. But there's a shitload on YouTube, and I found myself going, "Oh my god, I'm watching," you know, being addicted to watching them. But yeah. then going, "Ah, oh, nah, they need to be taken off as soon as there's a DVD of it out." Because I agree. yeah, I agree. As soon because as there's a legitimate version of it. Yeah, that's I think because if people that can afford it, they should just buy the. DVD disc you know exactly and who would settle for like a 360p you know video rip on on youtube that's mm. been heavily compressed when you can watch the movie like uh, there was a movie i watched the trailer because like i said i've been you know digitizing all these trailers mm. there was this movie that the title eludes me from 1988 but i was so sold on this tv movie trailer and usually the tv movie trailers aren't the best because it's it they've just been slapped together because it was never really a trailer there might have been a broadcast trailer but it's different but anyway there's enough interesting elements of this this trailer was slapped together and you go this looks fucking amazing and the first place i went was is it available on dvd no has it ever no okay is it on youtube and no but then someone had put four minutes of the movie up on youtube right. from the court uh, case uh in the tail end of the movie and i'm like well i can't watch that because i've got no context for that right. it seems like it's going to ruin the movie for me but yeah you know it'd be great to it would be great i think the one advantage going to the whole like you know we haven't really discussed it the whole streaming aspect is if they were to open up the archives and make these things available that maybe they don't think that there's enough of an audience to create a master replicate discs mm. you know get it to retail but to open up those archives to release those tv movies and those tv programs uh and for us to be able to access them like Warner archives has done and even paramount in the u.s unfortunately it's you know geo blocked here but paramount have put a lot of vault you know films on their youtube channel so you can watch it and i think it's got pre-roll advertisements but they're films that probably don't have uh you know enough commercial viability even for olive or screen factory or whomever to release that they've just made them available to watch there but right. they have been restored to you know they've been scanned from a film print so whether it's a negative or even a release print at least it's a proper film in its aspect ratio and it's not some butchered tape master you're watching but um yeah i just wish there was more of that i wish i you know it's it's yeah hopefully the future is that we'll be able to access if this whole streaming thing it's got to go two ways. It can't just be for this new content. It's got to be able to open doors to some archival content that otherwise we would have no access to. Because mm, I can't. Uh, and who I, knows if mm. if people stream it and then people and people like it, then maybe they'll deem it. I just can't. Uh, I've, I've, I've had, there was a documentary, uh, a, a documentary about a Stephen Sondheim musical that was only available on, I think, one of the Netflix or whatever it was. And oh, so I, so I wanted to see it. And, I was, and there's no DVD release of it yet, as of yet. So I thought, oh, fuck it. I'll just do join up the trial thing. Yes. And so I watched that, fine, stunning, loved it, cried, and then scanned through while I've got this trial to see what else is on there. <laughs> oh, yeah. my God. There's nothing on these things. Oh, and then I've had access to other ones so even like um there was a really 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 good doco series um uh on uh, apple tv that i watched and watched actually multiple times because it was just so good but then i scanned through that as well and looked oh what else is on here da? nothing it's like oh God, so these I streaming know. services are awful like their, their classic quote-unquote section is just like okay i've got those i've had those on dvd for friggin the start of the dawn of dvd and have them on probably on video as well and then their horror content okay it's like a lot of it's just exactly. music. It's oh, just God. how do people 
why do people like these streaming things? I, I just don't see that there's not. And then I get told, oh, you're not looking properly. I go, okay, to teach me how to look properly. Like yeah, there's exactly. nothing on there. And even all the sort of, yeah. I agree. When it comes to your Netflix and your Stan, all these sort of, um, you know, sort of really sort of, they seem that they exist to just market new original TV mm. series programming and not and not actually showcasing back catalogue films and, and particularly anything that existed prior to 1990. Um, but then there is Amazon Prime and Amazon Prime, I think, has a better back catalogue of films. I but, think US um, Amazon Prime does. I think... Well, you- uh, we've got it here too, but oh. it is when I say back catalogue, it's not like um, it's it's a lot of exploitation stuff. It's the stuff that you see released maybe through like Dark Force uh, Entertainment okay. or Scorpion or Code Red. Okay, yeah. Um, so there is some good stuff there. Um, it's just hard to find because there's just uh, Amazon Prime has it has seemingly has everything, but not enough of the one thing. That right. you seem to care about, but um, I'm constantly surprised when I look through that and it, navigating it's a nightmare. There's actually a website I go to called Just Watch, and what I can do in Just Watch is I can actually put in the genre and I can put in the year and I scale it. I scale the you just press it, and you scale it right down. It's like oh, I want to watch anything that came before 1985, and so it only brings up everything in their catalog in that genre up until that year. Um, so I find that's a good way to navigate. Um, the catalogue, but I mean, I, I'm constantly buying yeah. uh, films. <laughs> and, you know, so, I, I don't know. I just I, I know like, someone I was like, like post pick up something mm. and, and put it in. Physically, there was someone just sending sending me. Oh, I just watched these western, these Joel McRae westerns on on Amazon Prime. I go, yeah, I've got them. Like, <laughs> and it's and God bless, good. Watch them. Get your kids in front of the fucking TV and make them watch this stuff because it's important. It's informative. But uh, then they're like, oh no, Lee, you'd really like it. It's got all these old movies. I go, yeah, I own both. Like I got them. And if I, and I thank you. It's really kind. But. <laughs> I don't know. There's nothing better than tangible, um, you know, product in your hand. I agree. I, the, the thrill, like the thrill of walking into a store and being able to to pick something up, to look at it, and then to leave with it, and to and to know, it's kind of like that whole idea of going to the video store. Mm. You've got that thing, you've got it. You know, you might own it now, but you've got it. It's in your hand. You're excited about it at the moment. And also, you just to just to be a bit know? more uh, in a serious tone, it's actually cutting yeah. into the work we do. Um, oh, it really is like I mean especially now with this pandemic you know I am so grateful super grateful like to the companies who um, hire me as um, you know a commentator or a book uh, writing essays or producing featurettes yeah. or whatever yeah. I do and same as yourself your content yeah. what yeah. you do um, we need this as a platform to survive to pay rent you know, oh, to God, eat yeah, um, so it's this kind of thing where when people say they downloaded it it's like mm, it's kind of like a bit of a spit in my face in your face I because agree. it's like this is content that we're producing for a beautiful deluxe edition or even if it's yeah. just coming with a commentary or if it's, it's you know it's these are beautiful releases with the print um, properly presented exactly. and it's all restored and it's all lovely and it's also it's it's film history and it's archiving film history and it's 
really important to sort of champion all the work of these people. Like today, on the time of this recording, which is the 23rd of, of April this year, 2020, we lost Shirley Knight, the classic, wonderful actress, theatre and film and TV actress. And she was in Endless Love, which I was lucky enough to do the audio commentary for, for Shout Factory. And I interviewed her for that release. Um, no, I actually did not interview her for that release. I interviewed her ye- years before um, just to do a, an article, a big essay on Endless Love. Um, and I had her quotes in there, but they used that release, um, that interview for the release, which was really nice just to have her on this, which basically, you know, celebrates this woman's work on a film that, you know, isn't one of her most regarded achievements. It's not, the you know, The Dark at the Top of the Stairs or Sweet Bird of Youth. It's Endless Love, which is, you know, an 80s film. But just, uh, you know, it's not a classic in that regard, but it is a classic in, in a pop cultural sense. But it's nice to have that featurette on a release, right? So if you were to download something like Endless Love, you're not going to get that. So you're not going to have this voice from, you know, however many, 40 years afterwards, retrospectively talking about this film she made, you know? Like, so I think that's something that people need to sort of really kind of look into and say, oh, yeah, you're right. All the stuff that Jarrett does and Lee does and people that work in that field is, you know, relatively important <laughs> in the history. Absolutely. I think, and, and that's the thing too, if you're not supporting these releases, then the labels aren't going to see them viable and they're not going to consider releasing any more of these films or let alone really making a good deluxe edition of a film. They may say, well, maybe this movie is just bare bones. And mm. that's a shame because in this day and age, although it is collectors keeping physical media alive, there is more often than not one shot for a release for one of these films coming out of the catalogue to get released on disc it's one shot it's not like it's going to come out and then in two years time that label that boutique label is going to double dip and do a two disc deluxe edition because yeah. there was so much interest in the first it is the only time we've got to we've got to support these labels these guys are in they're in you know they're in a, a, a situation now too mm. um with this whole current pandemic happening where if they're in the united states they're only able to operate and limited capacity, you know, when they're mailing, you know, the things out through their shop front or Amazon in the States, for instance, um, because people can't go into stores to buy things like the archive, which is Finnegan Syndrome's, you know, store. Yeah. Uh, even Amazon's, uh, it's a lower priority on non-essential items being shipped out to customers. So those home entertainment sort of orders are going out a little later. But this is the time, you know, rather than get on the streaming and try and catch up with the latest sort of fad series about um, some you know, inhumane guy that tortures, you know, um, animals. Uh, check out some films you haven't seen, you know. Yeah. Go through the catalogue of an actor or a director or even just look at, you know, a good distribution studio like Kino Lorber and have a look at their catalogue. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes a title alone will strike, you know, interest in you. But by yeah. means, yeah, this is a, I think this is such an important time to support these releases um, because, you know, it's not all about streaming, you know. It's not all about. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, I, I think I'm seeing on the internet people are like it has been, and even I'm told by because we're obviously in Australia, there's still stores operating like JB Hi-Fi and Minotaur yeah. are still operating, and people are going out and they are buying media again. Yes, they are. I guess they are discovering that these streaming, you know, uh, platforms don't have what they want on them. So I guess that's a that's a really good thing, and I guess people have just got to be patient. If you're placing an order, realize that things are moving slower, but you'll who knows how long we're going to be in this, and 
this is a really good time to stock up on films and to watch all those special features, to listen to those commentaries, to revisit a film. And it's also, I think, you know, commentary. when you mentioned that um, collectors are the people that are the only ones that look kind of keeping things alive, yeah. I think we need to kind of go back to the days where um, if you cared about a movie, if you wanted to watch a movie, you had to buy it. If you've got money, I mean, yeah. this, is a, this is a place of privilege to have money to buy movies, of, of course. course. Yeah, but if I you've got the money and you care about film and you're, you don't want to see yourself as a quote-unquote collector, that's cool because it is un- it is a dirty word to some people, but if you, like in the olden days, if you were in the olden days, in the day, if you wanted to see a film and it wasn't airing on television, you'd either tape it when it was on air, when it was airing, and you'd keep it and archive it with the, you know your ads yeah. cut out or whatever, or you go and buy it. Um, but you know that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. I think people just sort of don't want stuff. And I th- yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, it's not the thing is that sort of disheartens me when I hear people say they want to minimise and they don't want things. It's like, well, it's oh, not yeah, yeah. it's not things. It's it's no. like saying you don't want to read books, um, yeah. or you don't want to engage with art, or you don't want to. You know, it is art. It's 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 a it's a piece of product from creatives. Um, you know that these Absolutely. filmmakers made this and made these works, whether they're great or not, friggin' great. You know, it doesn't matter. But also on top of that, you've got um, all this additional stuff that's basically you know feeding this release that is not that goes beyond the film itself it's like you know it's everything else encompassing and it's really nice it's 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 something that's kind of really vitally important it's like buying an art piece and then having a nice annotated um booklet to go with it or you know that kind of thing or like you know we're not going to go and see theater or we're not going to go and see stage shows anymore because we can download stuff like that is just ludicrous it just doesn't it doesn't make yeah absolutely i think i think the 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 you know the one really good thing that's going to come out of people being in this you know situation is that when 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 things get back to normal the experience of people going out to see a movie again you know all these uh, particularly these people probably that have been pro download or pro streaming for mm, it'll feel it'll there. feel special again it'll feel special again and you know and hopefully yeah, yeah hopefully that some good will come of this unfortunate, you know, sort of predicament that we're finding ourselves in at the moment. And hopefully people will go back to stores again. Not that I'm anti-ordering online. God knows I do order a lot of stuff online, but that's because it is hard to sometimes get stuff. But hopefully it'll drive people back into stores to have that Mm. experience of, like, going into whether it's JB or going to a specialist retailer like Minotaur and um, seeing the stuff on the shelves, engaging with it, talking to yourself as well, you know, getting recommendations. So you're kind of returning to that old-school video store, sort of mentality yep. where you went in and you actually touched things, you saw things and you would speak to someone of, you know, some knowledge that could kind of recommend things to you. And rather than just jumping on like, you know, BuzzFeed's 10 scariest films <laughs> at midnight. You know, Shut up, Jared. Like, we, you write those. <laughs> I've never written one, sir. <laughs> Maybe for Category 3 films, but that's totally different because, I mean, yeah, who's going to read about that? But yeah. Um, but, yeah, you know, I think, I hope, I hope that that's... I hope that's what's going to happen, you know, I really do. And especially because there's no film festivals at the moment. Obviously, we're really hoping that everything will be fine by October and Monster Festival will be will be there. Well, he's um, hoping. Yeah, fingers crossed everything's going to be, you know, at a, a state of normal so we can do that. And then, yeah, and people can come and engage in the festival aspect and have a beer and have a chat after a movie, mm-hmm. um, you know, come to a lecture by someone like yourself as well and then, you know, catch up with you and chat afterward and, and have that sort of, that experience once again and i think once this is over and we've got that yeah i think hopefully we realize you know even me how special that experience is that maybe i don't go 
well, I could go to the movies tonight or I could just stay in. No, I should definitely go to the movies because that's an experience, you know, whether it's going to the Astor to go and see, uh, you know, a classic double feature, regardless of whether I own them on Blu-ray, it's mm-hmm. always a pleasure to see them on the big screen. That's right. Or whether it's to see some new movie that I'm just curious about, just as long as, you know, I'm engaging with the art, you know, and um, not taking things for granted. Because I know, I, I admit that I, I've done, I've taken things for granted. We all have. We all have, yeah, Jared. We're just we human. We well, on that beautiful, hopeful note, it's been a pleasure. Oh, Thank you so much, Lee. Like, honestly, it's great hearing your voice and being able to... Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It feels like we're just hanging out. Like, this would be normal, normally a hangout. So it hasn't really felt like a, I don't know what, you know, like an interview sort of format. It's felt very (laughs) loose and fun. So thank you so much for, for, you know, giving me the time to have this conversation. Keep up the excellent work and hopefully we see each other before... Um, October. Oh, fingers crossed, Lee. I'm dying. I'm dying for it. (laughs) Cool. Thanks, Jarrett. Thanks, Lee. For centuries, the link between man and the primates has been shrouded in darkness. Surrounded by mystery. Dr. Philip is expecting me. Now, one man has closed the gap. Well, he's a different kind of intelligence. Forged the link. It's different, all right. And discovered what has always been missing. Don't get involved in their squabbles. They sort them out. Link, what happened in here? Always forgive them, whatever they do. Don't ever let anything escalate. Are you right? They killed Dennis. Link, man is no longer in control.